0: Thanksgiving from Rising on behalf of myself, Amisha, of course, Brianna, The whole rising team, Spencer, Jessica, Amber, Shermichael, I think I got everybody. We all wish you a happy Thanksgiving. It is Thanksgiving Day, obviously, Amisha, so we're not really here. We're at our respective homes somewhere (laughs) in the Midwest, and we've just been transported here. And we happen to be wearing the same clothes we were wearing yesterday, so pay no attention to any of that.
1: (laughs) Any big Thanksgiving traditions?
0: Um, uh, Let me see. I don't really have big Thanksgiving traditions. We, you know, I'm gonna be spending it uh, with my mom, my grandmother, my brother. Um, we're gonna do, you know, turkey stuffing, mashed potatoes, basic stuff. There is the, the, um, the decorating of the Christmas tree at uh, my mom's house occurs on the, on the post Thanksgiving day. Um, relaxing period on Friday. The, the decorating of the Christmas tree is very important. Christmas music will finally be played. There can be no Christmas music until then. That, that
1: is, so, I've been playing Christmas no! music. No,
0: June, June. Oh God, that's, that's, I'm,
1: I'm so excited. You it's know, you. you have no idea. It's you and I am um,
0: it's you and the the grocery store I, I shop at. It's Harris Teeter, I think. Um yeah, they've been playing Christmas music in the parking garage. Because we, for we weeks fast now.
1: forward months ahead. You know, once you get past Fourth of July, I am ready for Christmas. I can skip every other holiday I, in between.
0: That is crazy. I don't <laughs> want to hear Christmas music until the day after Thanksgiving. But not um, even
1: Mariah Carey. <laughs> no that's, just, <laughs> she, that's crazy she becomes unfrozen just for this time of year I I
0: don't I don't we don't unfreeze her until again until <laughs> until Friday so you're going um, home to Chicago Absolutely. Uh, what goes on at your Thanksgiving
1: um we basically make enough food to feed the entire south side of Chicago my family <laughs> believes in making way too much um, you talk you're talking everything macaroni and cheese casserole turkey Cornish hens ham um, various types of seafood Potato oh. salad, greens, uh, cornbread, There's, it's, it's, it's a whole it's show and at least six different types of desserts which is ironic because a lot of people in my family have diabetes but they act like they don't for, <laughs> for Thanksgiving but I'm really excited.
0: Alright, well um, I don't know about you but one thing I'm looking forward to this holiday is having the day off from political debate. It looks like most Americans feel the same. A new Quinnipiac University poll finds 6 in 10 Americans are looking to avoid political discussion at the dinner table this Thanksgiving. The polling analyst Tim Malloy said in a news release, a healthy dose of Zip It will be on the menu as voters acknowledge that if they plan on talking turkey over the big meal, it will be about the food, not about the politics. I know this is something that a lot of people complain about, having to talk— You know politics with their family. It's not really a problem in my family. My family members mostly agree with me. My grandma really does like to talk about politics, and uh, but we kind of agree. And you know, she's a little bit more conservative than I am, but uh, it's it's pleasant banter. I don't have the like. Um, I guess from my perspective, it would be like an intensely liberal or leftist family member or something who wants to argue with me, um, and which I would refuse to do because, like, that's my job. <laughs> I, I, I'll do it when I'm sitting in this chair talking to you or talking to Brianna. I, don't, I get paid to do that. I Like, in my recreation, on the street, if you came up to me and said, Robbie,
1: what do you think about politics? I'd be like, no, stop. I'm not on the clock right now. You don't get this for free.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, that
1: absolutely makes sense. Uh, my family has a lot of different political perspectives, from mm-hmm. people who are apolitical to people who are hyper liberal to people who are a little bit more conservative—not Trump conservative, but Reagan-esque mm-hmm. conservative. Um, I don't think that there is there's ever there's never been like a knockdown, drag-out fight. We disagree, but the thing I think that would really set people off is more religion than it is politics. Really, which we. Typically avoid around the table because there are some Muslims in my family, there are people who are Jewish in my family, and obviously there are Christians in my family. So religion is typically something we don't converse about a lot over the holiday or in general. Um, (laughs) However, politics is pretty much a free for all. Oh, that's
0: fascinating. Well, it could be, I guess it could be a touchy year for that subject, given what's going on. Yeah, you got to avoid that. Yeah, we don't argue about religion in my family. It's all, it's all. Catholics, um, you know, who don't, a, a lot of them, laughs Catholics like myself, so it's, it's just kind of in the background and there's no fighting about it. Um, but I am looking forward to seeing everybody and getting um, a, a few days off. Um, this is always an interesting time of year because then you have, like, the Thanksgiving holiday and then you're, you're back at it for, like, two, three weeks and then Christmas rolls around Um, and there's like a lot of, there's a lot of holiday parties and everything to to go to. So it's a busy time of the year that goes by really quickly, I think.
1: No, absolutely. I'm planning travel. Uh, this time was fun. It was just going back home. But this next holiday, I'm more than likely going to be hopping around Europe. So it's going to be a little bit of a different uh, holiday season. Yes, I love Europe especially this time of year. They know how to do some Christmas markets. Again, I'm a Christmas geek. All right. Well, exciting. Uh, Happy travels to you and everybody
0: at home. Uh, We are always grateful that you tune in, and we hope you have a wonderful holiday, and we'll see you back for fresh content next week. Thanksgiving from everyone here at Rising. Brianna and I will be back to bring you the latest news next week. In the meantime, enjoy this flashback from earlier this year. 2024 Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. testified on Capitol Hill today in the House Judiciary Select Subcommittee for the Weaponization of the Federal Government hearing. Democratic lawmakers on the committee blasted Kennedy as he testified about censorship, tech companies, and free speech. In fact, here's some of Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz actually trying to stop Kennedy's testimony as this whole thing was ongoing. Let's watch some of that.
2: 11 Clause 2, which Mr. Kennedy is violative of. I move that we move into an executive session because Mr. Kennedy has repeatedly made despicable, anti-Semitic, and anti-Asian comments as recently as last week. Rule 11 Clause 2 says, whenever it is asserted by a member of the committee that the evidence or testimony at a hearing may tend to defame, degrade, or incriminate any person, or it is asserted by a witness that the evidence or testimony that the witness would give at a hearing may tend to defame, degrade, or incriminate the witness, and it goes on. Mr. Kennedy, uh, among many other things, has said, I know a lot now about bioweapons. We put out hundreds of millions of dollars in, into ethnically targeted microbes. The Chinese have done the same thing. In fact, COVID-19, there is an argument that it is ethnically targeted. COVID-19 attacks certain races disproportionately. The races that are most immune to COVID-19 are- The lady
0: making a motion or a speech?
2: I, and I've made a motion to move into executive session because Mr. Mr. Kennedy's testimony- Mr. Chairman, I move to table the motion.
3: Meanwhile, Republican Chairman Jim Jordan tweeted in response, Democrats are attempting to censor speech during a censorship hearing. Can't make it up.
0: Robert F. Kennedy Jr. joins Brianna and I here in the studio right now to discuss. Mr. Kennedy, welcome to our program. Thanks for having me back. So. You testified today about social media censorship, some of it done at the federal government's behest. And as that was happening, right at the start, members of the federal government actually tried to prevent you from speaking. What did you make of that paradigm happening unfolding in real time on the very issue you were there to talk about? You know,
4: I was censored. You know, uh, Judge Doty's decision was released two weeks ago. It was an extraordinary 155 page decision by a federal district judge in joining the federal government from uh, from censoring anymore, from from colluding with social media. In fact, Judge Doty asked the, the White House to have no more contact with any of the social media sites because of the, you know, the magnitude of the censorship. I was in Judge Doty's decision—he mentions that I was the first one—that President Biden uh, tried to censor two days after he was sworn in. White House officials uh, called—contacted Facebook and asked them to to take down my site, which they did—take down my platform, which they did. They took down my entire Instagram site with 900,000 people, and I had no misinformation on there. They, They had to make up a new term called malinformation. And that means information that is true, but nonetheless offensive to federal policies. Uh, so, for a long time, I was being censored both by the Trump administration and by the uh, Biden administration. Once I declared for president, it became more difficult. So, now they've started this slander offensive against me to, to silence me. This was extraordinary because it, it was a media, it was a, a hearing on censorship. And number one, 102 Democrats signed a, a letter uh, asking that I not be allowed to talk. And when I get there, got there, um, the Democrats, each of them, listed all these slanders, all of which are untrue. I've never made an anti-Semitic comment in my life, and I said that under oath. Or racist comment, not once in my life. I have a better position on Israel than anybody on that committee and anybody in that chamber. I'm the only one who's asked that President Biden revoke the two billion dollars that he's sending to Iran. Oh, but they wouldn't. They, they listed all these libels and then they would not allow me to, to reply. So they literally um, made every effort possible to make sure that I couldn't talk. And uh, you know, the issues that I'm talking about are issues that are of great concern to American people, not only the First Amendment, but the economic issues, the destruction of the middle class. We need to be able to talk about those things. And this is what I said to the committee. You know, we need, we're, we're a democracy. The free flow of information is the sunlight, it's the water, it's the fertilizer for democracy. We are—we are riven now by this kind of polarization of name-calling and hatred and vitriol and marginalization, and we somehow need to start talking to each other again in a way that's gentle, that's kind, that's dignified, respectful, and understanding.
3: Yeah, I want to ask you a little bit about that, because I think it was anticipated that the Democrats were going to have the response to you that they had going into this hearing. There were a number of statements that were made over the course of the last week or so that seemed to foreground the idea that they were going to focus on your statements that they characterize as anti-Semitic and avoid the substance of the censorship issues that you were there to talk about. And I wonder what you make of the, the, the situation that you're in, where you're running in the Democratic Party. And ostensibly, moments like this, hearings like this, are opportunities to bring the priorities that you care about. like censorship to the public, where they've been siloed for recent history over in a lot of alternative and right-leaning sites. If Democratic electives are going to have this kind of response to you and a hearing like this, have you thought about strategically how you plan to help Democratic voters prioritize issues like censorship and like some of the other uh, environmental concerns, um, some of the uh, COVID, COVID mandate vaccine concerns that you've raised and which have been very popular in alternative media?
4: yeah i um, that's a really good question, and i you know i I clearly have the DNC against me, mm-hmm. and you know it's not a coincidence that uh, that debbie Wasserman Schultz was leading the kind of battle against me, and she's the same individual who was charged with corruption for getting bernie you know, who was leading and almost certainly would have won right and she led the um you know, the, the DNC's efforts to uh, to exclude him from the race. So I was not surprised about her, her attitude toward me. I'm hoping, it, you know, I mean, Bernie found an audience, despite the fact that the entire power structure was against him. And I think I have even an advantage on, on you know, what uh, Bernie Sanders had, because that was before there were podcasts, and that was, you know, he didn't really have the ability to talk to large amounts of grassroots, rank mm. and file Democrats, and I'm hoping that you know that that will give me a path into um, uh, into the voters in the primary, despite the fact that the DNC is trying to shut me down.
0: I want to give you a chance to answer the criticism you got uh, from those comments you made uh, a week ago at the dinner, where you said there's an argument that COVID was bio—was engineered as a weapon to ethnically target different races. And you referenced a study that showed—this one study that showed that one of the receptors for, for COVID not being present in the disease for Ashkenazi Jews. And then were criticized that that was an anti-Semitic finding. And I've heard some people in the scientific community say, well, that even if that is true of the science, that it does, the COVID doesn't have that receptor, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that category of Jewish people would be less affected. And also, we don't have evidence that it was — it's a theory that it was engineered as a bioweapon. I mean, we're still arguing about whether it — I think there's a lot of evidence it could have come from a lab, but, you know, we still haven't even settled that question, let alone whether it was engineered on purpose. So how do you respond to those? Places? Yeah, I mean,
4: you know, I um, my my statement. You you made a pretty good synopsis of my statement. I did not say that it was by the uh, that COVID was. In, I certainly didn't say it was engineered to target certain races. I, I, what I did say is that the United States, Ch- China, and Russia are putting large amounts of money into ethnic bioweapons. And then I pointed to a, um, a, an NIH-funded paper, actually a series of papers between 2019 and 2021, that showed um, that receptor sites on the, uh, as you say, the, the, uh, the docking site on the fur and cleave is compatible with the ACE2 receptors in the lungs of certain races, African, uh, people of African descent, most of all Caucasians, and then there's a series of people, I think Chinese, one of the least, Um, and a a number of other races, including Amish, and with the most uh, incompatible being, in other words, the most protected being Finns, people from Finland. Now, I never suggested that in the real world that the infection infected those people more or less, and I never suggested that it was engineered deliberately by anybody to achieve that effect. There are many, many viruses that have disproportionate effect on races, What the significance to me was, as a kind of proof of concept, that this is something that bioweapons engineers would pursue. And that's all. Um, I certainly did not mean that. Uh, It was never intended, never entered my mind that it was engineered deliberately to uh, to to protect Jews and injure other people.
3: Yeah, there's something about um, one of the statements that Stacey Plaskett, a representative from the Virgin Islands, made at the hearing today, where she was speaking um, critically of the idea of talking about COVID disproportionately affecting Black people in particular, when many of us remember earlier in the pandemic, a lot of sensitive conversations around the fact that instances like the Tuskegee experiment and other bad um, uh, interactions between the Black community in the United States. and the medical institutions that we have, created, I think, legitimate skepticism among black people who were considering whether or not to get vaccinated. So at an earlier time in the pandemic, it seemed like the progressive, dare I say, woke thing to talk about, which is how to encourage black people, despite this legitimate concern they have, to go ahead and get um, vaccinated. And at today's hearing, it seemed like that was flipped on its head somewhat, whereas talking about the fact of there being any disproportionate consequences or outcomes in various populations was evidence of a kind of Racism. I mean, what do you make of how your statements have been characterized, arguably mischaracterized in this this context by Democrats?
4: Yeah. I mean, my statements have been consistently, as I said, I mean, I've never made an an anti-Semitic statement in my life. But I I do talk about the science, you know, the studies that I mentioned just now were funded by NIH. They were done by scientists at the Cleveland Clinic. They were published. And one of them was published in a you know really high impact, high gravitas journal. I think it's UBC Medical, which is the top ten journals in the country. So I was just talking about the science. I wasn't trying to put interpretations on it. The, you know, the interesting thing is that, that blacks did die disproportionately during COVID, but I doubt if it was because of the virulence of the anything to do with the virus. I think it was more. The disparities in medical care in black neighborhoods, and also the the, the levels of chronic disease in American blacks, for example, um, blacks were dying in our country at a rate of three thousand people per million population. In Haiti, which is a poor country, we were told the poor countries were going to be devastated. They had a one percent, about one point three percent vaccination rate, so almost nobody was vaccinated. And they were dying at a rate of 14 people per million population, so 1 200th of our death rate. The same in Nigeria. The average in Africa was about 320 per million population. That's one-tenth of what we had here. So it's unclear. These are all things that need to be studied. But I never believed that it was because the—you know, I don't think—I think it's unlikely that it's because the virus is is more— uh, virulent towards uh, could, uh, Africans. Could those
0: discrepancies, those differences in um, the lethality of COVID be attributed to you know different um, yes. uh, ages of the population? Yes. I, I don't know exactly, but the, yes. the average age in Haiti is probably younger yeah, I, than I, here and things like that. Yeah.
4: I, the, yes. There are many, many other co-variables. And, and it's interesting. I mean, the, these are things that should be studied. Well, I don't think you can make any conclusion from them. But for example, Japan, which has the oldest population in the world, had a death rate about one-tenth of the United States. So, you know, these are things—NIH has a $42 billion annual budget. We ought to be looking at that and saying, why are some people surviving one? Or is it because they took ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine in this country? is What are the protocols, what are the—you know, the other differences, so that the next time we have a disease like this, that we actually have some knowledge about it. But those kind of the real questions that you'd want answered are not studied. And that is frustrating.
0: Do you think there's, you know, they talk about hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. I've looked at a lot of the studies. It seems pretty mixed to me. I haven't seen a lot of compelling evidence that they did a lot of good. I've seen one argument that um, ivermectin, which can help you if you have a, a Parasitic infection. Well, if you study the countries where that's more prevalent, where they did a lot of the um, uh, ivermectin studies, there was a there was a good outcome, but it was it wasn't because it was fighting. It was making it easier for you to recover from COVID if you also had a parasitic infection at the same time. So I wonder if there's a skew on the, the the slight positive that that, have you, have you heard this argument well, before? I, I, so know, it wouldn't be able to I've help looked, you in the US because there's not widespread uh, parasitic infections.
4: Yeah, I mean, I've looked very, very uh, carefully at the, at the studies. There's now, in fact, I just did an article this week there are now 100 studies that show that ivermectin had profound benefits, in, uh, generally speaking, a 70 to 85% reduction in hospitalizations and deaths. It, it was really a miracle drug, particularly in the later pand- pandemic. But I draw, I'm saying
0: if that was all in like Bangladesh or South no, America, it could be because it was all, they all over was the world. It
4: was all over the world. And the, the, the countries where they use it for parasites, Nigeria, um, which has the highest river blindness bur- burden in the world, did have the lowest COVID death rate in the world. Um, the, they use both. They also have the biggest malaria burden, so virtually the entire population is on my um, on hydroxychloroquine, and a large part of the population is on ivermectin for l- river blindness. So. Um, and they had almost no vaccination. They had, I think, one like something like 1.3% vaccination. So they did very well. But there are states in India, sort of side-by-side states, like Kerala and Uttar Pradesh, where Kerala used our protocol and had the same uh, comparable death rates. And Uttar Pradesh used ivermectin hydroxychloroquine and ended the pandemic overnight. But there's, there's also, if you go in the literature, and there's a, there's a doctor called Merrill Mass who has assembled a lot of these, so you can go on her website and see them, or Harvey Reich, who's the Yale epidemiologist, has also assembled them. There's 400 studies Mm
0: -hmm.
4: that show benefits from hydroxychloroquine, over almost 100 studies, I think 99, that show extreme benefits, like devastating benefits of ivermectin, uh, and and there's a handful of studies that are government-produced, WHO-produced, financed by Bill Gates that say that there was no benefit, but those studies have a lot of problems.
3: Well, Mr. Kennedy, I want to change gears a little bit and go back to something you said earlier, I think, in response to our first question, which is that you bristled at the accusations of anti-Semitism, in part because you have the best um, uh, record on Israel or the best position on Israel as compared to other people in the field or other people in the room or what have you. And I I wanted to raise this concern, I think, that a lot of folks on the left who are interested in your campaign have which is that what is considered broadly in American discourse and among the Democratic Party—frankly, among the two-party establishment—to be a good position on Israel is not the the position that many people on the left take. So there was some frustration with respect to you walking back, your um, support of Roger Waters, um, the kind of repeated uh, choice to go to Rabbi Shmuley and more conservative members um, uh, of the community— when you are being criticized uh, with these accusations of anti, uh, anti-Semitism, anti you've spoken to about your, quote, unconditional support of Israel, and at a time when so- progressives were just kind of tacitly sanctioned in the House for saying, in agreement with the international community, that Israel is an apartheid state. When the Democratic, uh, you know, House Caucus is passing a resolution saying, Categorically, it is not an apartheid state uh, against what Amnesty International and all these other groups have said, that it's not a racist state. Is that a kind of censorship as well that you're concerned about? Shouldn't uh, elected Democrats, elected uh, House members have the ability to criticize any nation-state without it seeming like it's a violation um, that it needs to be responded to with this kind of a resolution, this kind of codified censorship?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think people ought to be able to criticize Israel, and I don't think it's anti-Semitic to criticize Israel. Uh, here's what—you know, here's the distinction. If, you, if you're criticizing Israel and not applying the same standards to neighboring states or other states— if, in other words, if you're, you're making a special category to, uh, to, crack, to criticize Israel that's unique to Israel and letting all the other states do the worse, much worse— that then uh, evinces a bias, and uh, you know. Let me let me say, tell you why I think the moral case for Israel, and I, you know, that, which would take me hours to lay out. But Israel, if you if you want freedom, if you're, for example, a woman, you'd rather live in Israel than any other neighboring countries. If you are a, uh, if you're gay, two weeks ago there was a, a gay pride parade in Israel, 150,000 people at the same time. Iran was hanging gays from cherry pickers in the, in the major cities. If you're again, if you're a woman, if you want freedom of religion, you've got to be in Israel. There yeah, are there are there religion. are Palestinians on the Israeli Supreme Court. Can you imagine there being a Jew on the Supreme Court of any other country in the Middle East? So what I'm saying is, and you know the the. Conflicts between the, the historical conflicts between the Palestinian the Israel, and Israel and Israel are, if you look at the history of that, it has nothing to do with what happened in South Africa. This is a historical conflict that Israel has repeatedly made huge concessions to try to to settle. The Palestinian leadership, I think, has let down the Palestinians time and time again. I refuse. Palis, the Palestinian Authority pays Palestinians to kill Jews at this point.
3: So there's a a lot that is disputed in there. But let me just start by saying Human Rights Watch, for instance, qualifies Israel as an apartheid state for the following reasons. It points to um, sweeping restrictions on the movement of Arabs, Palestinians in the region, widespread land confiscation, the imposition of harsh conditions which have led to thousands of Palestinians leaving their homes under conditions that amount to forcible transfer, the denial of residency rights to hundreds of thousands of Palestinians and their relatives, and the suppression of basic civil rights to millions of Palestinians. So I think that many people bristle at this characterization that, well, there's a double standard that people are applying to neighboring Arab nations and Israel. I think most of us would be happy and are happy to point to any number of human rights violations that happen in other countries around the world, including in the Middle East. The question is whether or not, because of our, quote-unquote, special relationship with Israel, the amount of money that we give to Israel, the amount of arms that we fund with respect to the Israeli uh, defense, I think as part—in our own military interest, not because of a, I think, particular interest, subjectively, in the well-being of Jewish people living in the region, that we have an obligation to be more critical of a state that we have so much financial entanglement with. So what do you say to that, that, in fact, the double standard is people who are willing to criticize those other Arab states while ignoring what our own money is funding in Israel?
4: Yeah, and, I, you know, I, I think that we can criticize our friends. Israel is the only democracy in the Mideast, and all of those issues, the difficult relationship between the Palestinians and the Israelis, I, I believe, time and time again, the Israelis have, in good faith, is various Israeli governments, going back to Ehud Iraq, have tried time and time again to settle in the most generous possible terms possible. Uh, if you're dealing with leadership that adopts a charter, then you, that we're not just gonna go after military targets. We are encouraging our people to kill as many Jewish civilians as possible, which is the policy of the PA, the policy of Hamas, um, you know, you look at any country that has security issues, and there's going to be some kind of oppression when we, during World War II, we're a big country. We put all the Japanese residents, citizens, in concentration camps in our country. Right. And Israel's a tiny country, surrounded by hostile countries, each one. Sworn to the genocidal destruction of every Jew in Israel, so and you, so they, there is a security issue there, and those kind of security problems require a kind of care and you know and and security precautions that anybody else in the world would would be would be a million times more.
3: So does that justify then something like these um, illegal settlement, settlements that have been roundly? criticized by the international community, or maintaining Palestinians in what have been described as open-air prison-type states with unequal access to water and basic, um, you know, uh, life, life-sustaining provisions. Do you—would you condemn the, those, those settlements? It, it, this, uh, again, the Israelis, again and again, during the negotiations,
4: have offered to close those settlements and to obliterate them and to move their populations out.
3: So, out in, out I, into where? Because I think the fundamental issue is that—and as a matter of Israeli uh, policy, and fact, this is part of fact, why—
4: if you—let you me finish. In, in fact, in polling, the residents of those settlements have have favored closing the settlements in exchange for real peace agreement. Uh, what the Israelis uh, so what is, have said, is you know, like? we will close those settlements. We will—you know, we'll, we will trade land for peace. The Israelis have said that again and again and again. In every instance, the Palestinians have refused. So, I
3: think this, this is the fundamental issue, is that there's some—you know, some substantive disputes over the timeline of who said no to which kind of agreements and who's at fault for the viability of the two-state solution being increasingly not viable, especially because of the increased expansion of the settlements and the fact that there isn't enough land left, basically, for them to really be an integrated Palestine at this point, which is why the left has moved from a position of a two-state solution to something that needs to be closer to a one-state solution. But the problem with the latter and this is why Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, et cetera, have described this as an apartheid state, is that the stated position of the Israeli government is that if we were to fully allow Arab Palestinians to have full citizenship and voting rights because of the population's reality of the states, they feel like they can no longer maintain a Jewish state. And as and a stated desire to do exactly that is definitionally if you if you want to enforce laws that keep people at various statuses of citizenship within a country, that's how we get to the position where it's an apartheid state. So then, how do you square a condemnation of some of those actions on the part of the Israeli government, which we send so much money to, with what you have said before, which is that you have this, quote, unconditional support? How can you—and when we still have this monetary relationship with Israel also support unconditional support while having the ability to criticize the actions of the government?
4: Well, by unconditional support, I don't mean that I'm going to co-sign every action by by Netanyahu or Likud or whatever, or every—or the settlements or, you know, a, a particular settlement or a particular policy. I don't mean that. I mean that we have a special relationship with Israel. Israel is an outpost of democracy. And, and you know, one of the ways to think about this is that after World War II, um, we developed the same special relationship with Turkey and with Greece, because uh, we believe that keeping those countries functional in that part of the world was an important barrier against the expansion of adversaries. Today we have the Chinese and Russians moving into the Mideast in force. The one ally that we have that is really reliable is Israel. But not only that, Israel is a an oasis of democracy. It's the only democracy in the Mideast. It's the only and it, listen, even if you're a Palestinian, it's gonna be better to be in Israel. If you wanna if you wanna criticize your government. You better do it in Israel than any of the surrounding governments. Be-
0: before uh, before we let you go, I want to turn one more time to the hearing you participated in today. You spoke, it seemed off the cuff for your actual opening remarks, like you had something prepared, but then you, you addressed uh, it when filed, you represented I, Washington yes. and Schultz. To- yeah. <laughs> sure. Um, you spoke about... Um, Americans being at a time of such bitter bitter division i mean the hearing was evidence of, of that division so much um, strife and disagreement um, including on covid matters vaccines mandates everything you know what is your pitch to a public that is wildly divided on even just the subject of vaccines uh, you know w- w- whether they're a good idea whether they should be required for who for what age range how what kind of effect they had on the pandemic? What is your pitch for some kind of vision where people can you know, make their own choices about it and let other people make different choices and have that be OK and us all live together in the same country? Yeah, I mean, on that
4: issue particularly— uh, you know, I—I'm character. Part of the way of silencing me is by telling everybody that I'm anti-vaccine. I'm not anti-vaccine. I—I I was fully vaccinated not with COVID, but I was compliant with all my childhood vaccines.
3: They tried to use that as a gotcha question today. They well, were yeah. like, "You're vaccinated, yeah, your no, I I mean, vaccinated. People don't know." And you're and so like, like, "I know like, like it." Like heard it a minute before.
4: <laughs> my, my kids were all fully vaccinated. My wife got three vaccines during COVID. My half my kids got vaccinated by COVID, and the other ones didn't. Um, but I, you know, and we get along as a family. I don't, uh, my job is not to tell people whether to take a vaccine or not. You know, that's up to the individual. My job is to make sure that we have the best science possible. And the problem with with vaccines, in my view, the reason I've been a critic is because vaccines are the only medical product that do not have to undergo placebo-controlled testing, Prior to license by FDA, the only medical product or medical device, we have seventy two vaccines that are now doses that are now mandated for our children. And in many states, they're you know federally recommended, which means mandated in many states. And none of them have have gone through a pre-licensing safety test with a placebo. And because of that, we do not know the risk profile of those products, and nobody can make a, a rational, common sense, prudent decision about, you know, the risk and benefits. So, and that's all I'm saying. I'm not saying, you know, I I don't wanna ban vaccines. I don't wanna tell people you can't get it, you can. I think we ought to have choice, number one, and we ought to have the best science possible.
3: Hmm. I've been intrigued by some of the um, kind of structural critiques you've made Uh, for example, the existence of this National Vaccine uh, Compensation Fund and the fact that there's this limited liability for uh, these manufacturers. And that does seem to tacitly acknowledge that if they were able to be sued for all of the vaccine injuries, that potentially the pharmaceutical manufacturers wouldn't see it as financially viable to continue to manufacture vaccines, despite them having these public health issues uh, or benefits. So I wonder—you know, you're you're saying— And you've been very clear that you're not anti-vaccine and that you have taken advantage of vaccine and your kids and family members have uh, taken the vaccines because of their protective value. But as you critique things like the limited liability of pharmaceutical companies and the choice to set up uh, the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Trust, are you concerned that, as president, if— that trust fund, if that, if that structure were to change, if we were to get rid of that and open up liability for uh, pharmaceutical companies, that the consequence might be that we don't have access to life-saving, um, you know, world-changing vaccines anymore. Uh, I don't
4: think so. And I think that there's there, there are other ways to do that but to make sure that the vaccines are safe. I think that's what we have to do. I think we need really good safety testing to make sure that they're safe. And you know, it may be that there's some vaccines that, you know, people would say, I don't want that one, I don't want a rotavirus vaccine, I don't want to have I don't want a hepatitis B vaccine for hepatitis B vaccine. You get hepatitis hepatitis B is spread through, you know, through sexual, unprotected sexual activity and and uh, hypodermic needles oh, um, you know, maybe I will wait till my child's older to get that vaccine like they do in other countries. And people ought to have those choices. That's all. Mm.
0: Robert F. Kennedy Jr., thank you so much for joining us in studio today. We really appreciate it.
4: Thanks so much for having
0: me. More rising (laughs) right after this. this flashback from earlier this year speaker kevin mccarthy's debt ceiling plan narrowly passed the house last night with the help of house republicans georgia representative marjorie taylor green being one of them she joins us now to discuss welcome congresswoman
5: thanks hi thanks for having me on Yes, thank you so
0: much for joining us. Why don't you take a minute to explain why you supported uh, this deal? Do you think it goes you know, far enough in, in constraining government spending, something you and you know, other uh, conservative members of the Republican Party in the House have articulated is an important priority?
5: I really appreciate that question. Um, actually, of course, for me, it, nothing goes far enough. We're a nation in over $31 trillion in debt, and to me, that doesn't have a one political party on it. It has both political parties on it because it took us decades to get to this point. But it was really um, the most recent year spending that has pushed us completely out of control. Um, and none of us here ever wanted to be put in a position to raise the debt ceiling. But the reason why I was able to support this bill and excited to get behind it is because we cut $4.8 trillion in spending. And as a fiscal conservative, that's something that I can get behind. But what's more important to me is once we get this package and this deal done and completely out of the way, we can move on to the real work, which is the budget and appropriations. That's where we have the real power to actually make changes and help get spending under control uh, for the American people.
3: In a recent 60 Minutes interview, you said that this is a spending problem, um, not a tax problem. And you resisted uh, pushes to, say, tax the wealthy, something that majorities of Americans support, and didn't seem to really focus on cutting the military budget as a way to bring down cost, despite uh, being a, a significant critic of the war in Ukraine, et cetera. There's been a lot significant conversation right now that Tucker has left Fox News about right populism versus left populism. Populism. And the differences between them seem to be largely about a willingness to go after elites and the rich on a financial level and do things like cut taxes for the rich, curb military spending. What do you say to folks that wonder why you won't go after elites in those sorts of ways? Well,
5: all of these are great topics, and, and I really appreciate you bringing them up. Um, let me unpack that a little bit, because that was quite a few things. Um, number one, I don't want to cut United States military spending. I want to c- stop all of the money being spent in the proxy war against Russia in Ukraine. I believe that's where the American people can save a lot of money. Uh, Ukraine is not a NATO member nation. This was something that President Biden acknowledged acknowledged from the very beginning. And uh, we're not, we should not be defending Ukraine's border while our border is completely out of control. So I would like to see changes there. I strongly support our military and I want to fund a, uh, the strongest military in the world and that being our own military, but I don't want to uh, fund a war in, in Ukraine against nuclear powered Russia. Secondly, we have, a, we have a spending problem in Washington DC, definitely not a revenue problem. Washington rakes in plenty of money but the spending is out of control. And again, I blame both parties for that. Um, the federal government is too big, it's overbloated. And as a business owner, that's what I've done most of my life. When you have too much overhead, you have to reel it back in and that's how you get your company back under control. And we need to do that for our country. The federal government needs to be treated like a, like a successful business, not a business that's on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, thirdly, uh, for, for Fox News, uh, one of the biggest media companies in our country, to fire their top guy, Tucker Carlson, um, I think is, is a, a very dangerous sign for America. I think it's an assault on our First Amendment. And I, I really value um, a free press. I do. This is something I talk about frequently. And when a, when a media company fires their top guy, the guy that's bringing them in the most money, the most revenue, the most ad dollars, um, it really shows something's wrong. And what I believe happened there is Fox News caved to the woke mob, and they were being sued on multiple levels, uh, really in political nature, and that's the way most conservative Americans see it. Um, There has been a huge backlash against Fox News. Pretty much everyone I know has canceled their Fox News app. They've taken it off their phone. They've canceled their Fox Nation uh, subscription. And they've said they're walking away from Fox News. And I don't blame those Americans one single bit. Tucker Carlson, uh, on his show, Tucker Carlson Tonight, and on his show on Fox Nation, has been covering the news stories that Americans desperately want to hear because we don't hear them um, largely from the left-biased mainstream media in this country. And this is Tucker Carlson is someone that will come back around. But Fox News needs to do the right thing and work with Tucker Carlson and not keep keep his mouth uh, shut with duct tape. They need to let him go and let him out of his contract so that he can do his show and go on to bigger and better things. And we look forward to seeing him come back.
0: It is interesting that he was virtually the only person on cable news uh, on any network uh, who was saying some of the things you just expressed, for instance, on uh, Ukraine being a a proxy war. Do you think he should run for president?
5: Well, I don't know. That would be up to Tucker Carlson. So I'm supporting President Trump for president Mm. in 2024, and I have no idea if Tucker would want to do something like that. I think he's more more interested in going back to the career that he rightly uh, deserves because he worked so hard at developing it.
0: Speaking of uh, Trump and the 2024 battle, uh, you know, everyone, many people think that DeSantis is eventually going to declare as well. A lot of conservatives, uh, like DeSantis, want a fresh face like what he's doing in the state of Florida, can point to his huge successes in the midterms, even versus kind of the general Republican landscape. Um, what, what is your case for Trump still being the best person to lead the Republican Party in 2024, given that he did lose to President Biden last time around?
5: Well, I would say uh, it's not really a lot of conserva- conservatives that want to see Ron DeSantis run for president. As I watch the polling every single day, he's da- it, he keeps dropping in the polls. He's down to around 20% now um, nationwide polling. So that's not a, a very large portion of conservative Americans. Um, president Trump is the man we want to see back in the White House. And that's because we know his record that he showed the American people for four years it was a record of success for our country, um, energy independence for the first time in decades. We had world peace for the first time in decades. Um, we had a strong economy. We we had a strong military, and we were respected, uh, you know, a, among the world, especially from world leaders. Um, freedom of speech is important. Our Second Amendment is is important. Our children's education is important. Our economy is important, and and lowering crime is a top top priority. So these are the things that we we know that President Trump brought America, and we want to see all those things come back uh, for for everyone in this country.
3: I want to come back to something that you said before, Representative, about being a successful businesswoman and thinking that the country needs to be run as a business. I think many populists perceive the, the that the company already, the country rather, is too much run in that direction. Fifty-seven percent of Americans think that billionaires, the extremely rich, should pay more of their fair share. In the uh, the debt ceiling uh, bill that was just passed, there were cuts to assistance for uh, women and children's nutrition and elderly nutrition. Three three million people who have their services cut. And it does seem over and over again that there is an extreme appetite for cutting the budget in ways that disproportionately affect poor and working people, while there's absolutely no appetite for ever taxing elite whose wealth share has grown exponentially over the course of the pandemic when so many people are struggling. So what do you say to folks who say the kind of populism that is being promoted by some people on the right is really a faux populism that really isn't invested in raising the material well-being of the poorest and most working class people in this country?
5: Hmm. I really love talking about this topic with you. Um, Actually, it's the unholy union of a powerful federal government with big corporations that has created a lot of the problems that we have. And it's the trade deals for decades where we sold out American factories and manufacturers and sent our jobs overseas and forced American companies to compete with countries like China and India, Mexico, and many others who use very cheap labor and child labor. You see, our American workers couldn't compete and our American companies couldn't compete to that. And that was the government that made that decision. They sold out American businesses and by doing so they sold out America's blue-collar workers. What we need to do is we need to break the unholy union between the federal government and big corporations and we need to make American companies number one in the world again and we need to stop forcing American companies to unfairly compete with foreign countries. And let's go a bit further there. You see, it's the excessive out-of-control spending in Washington, D.C., and the oversized government that has forced inflation to become so high that's really hurting America's poor. This is something I greatly understand. Um, This is is all that my friends and family. These are the people that I know and love back home in Georgia and many of the Americans that I talk to across the country. Americans are suffering because of the horrible decisions in Washington, D.C., and the horrible decisions in Washington D.C. are hurting the very people that pay the taxes that pay the light bills uh, for here, here in this building I'm sitting in, and and it's it's time to make that end. Well, I tend um, to agree the with. Big the big problem is is when we have lobbyists that we see every single day coming to lawmakers like me, pushing the interest of of big companies, big pharma, uh, the military-industrial complex, and et cetera but yet we don't see any lobbyists coming here, pushing the interest for the small business owner, you know, mom and dad back home, the mom and pop grocery stores and so forth. That's everything wrong with Washington. And those are the kinds of changes that I
3: wanna make. Yeah, I tend to agree with a lot of that representative, which is why there's a question about why conservatives have embraced, pushed for uh, the relationship, the ability for people to spend exponentially, frankly, uh, and undermine the one-person, one one-vote principles of our democracy. So decisions like Citizens United have greatly expanded the power of corporations to influence the government. Right now, we're in the middle of a discussion about whether the Supre- members of the Supreme Court have had undue influence because of informal lobbying efforts, people have argued. So would you support efforts to limit, restrict the amount that corporations can spend in politics?
5: Well, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. I can only speak for myself. Um, I don't take donations from lobbyists. That's something that I decided to do from the beginning. Um, and I truly believe that I, each representative, um, all 435 of us, we really are kind of like lobbyists or we should be for the people and the businesses back home in our districts. Um, so I, I, you know, I'm very interested in looking at some sort of changes possibly that can be made uh, for lawmakers and to reduce the influence of big corporations on, on legislation here in Washington, D.C., and make sure that we have the, the right focus on the American people. Um, but also, I'm a business owner, so I do understand the needs of businesses and their ability to be heard um, and things that affect their industry here. So I actually see it both ways. But I just wanna remind you, I'm I'm not really your average conservative or average conservative Republican, because I complain a lot of times about my party just as much as I do about the Democrat party.
3: Mm. I, I appreciate that, but just on that one point, not taking money from lobbyists is one thing, not taking money from corporate interests is completely another. I might be mistaken, but very few politicians actually take that no corporate money pledge. Bernie Sanders was one of them. And despite taking that pledge, managed to out-fundraise everybody else in the Democratic Party. Would you ever consider swearing off all corporate donations, speaking to, as you have done, how pernicious the influence of corporate money is in politics?
5: Well, I'm really excited to, to tell you that almost all of my donations are small dollar donors. I think my average donation, I I'm, could be off by a few dollars and change here, is somewhere around $35 uh, per person. So I, I'm not exactly sure what my average donor is, but I think it's, that, it's around that dollar amount, mm. um, you know? But I'd have to look at what that pledge looks like, because again, what if I have uh, one of my constituents that, that we have the flooring companies, Uh, in Dalton. So I don't want to say I'm going to swear off donations from someone that lives right there in my district. Uh,
0: Before we let you go, Congresswoman, wanted to give you a chance to respond to Hunter Biden calling for a House Ethics Office investigation into you. What do you have to say about that?
5: (laughs) I actually was pretty amused um, when I learned about this news. You know, it's really interesting that Hunter Biden, the son of the president of the United States, uh, after, re- especially I went in the Treasury and read the SARS reports. Uh, I've seen what banks were saying about his financial transactions. And I've also read his bank records. And I've seen the wire transfers from China and other foreign countries uh, directly into fake companies. These are LLCs and shell companies that don't produce a product or, or any kind of service. And then I saw in the bank records where Hunter Biden and many of his other family members got paid directly out of these shell companies, these LLCs. So again, I find it really amusing that Hunter Biden is so offended that I would actually talk about that fact, that he and his attorneys had to file a complaint with the house ethics, but you know what? He's an American citizen and that is his right to do so. Um, I don't think it's going to have any effect, uh, but I I was happy to share his attorney's letter um, on my, on my congressional <laughs> Twitter
3: account. One last question for me, Representative. Um, I actually agreed with you for when you called to defund the FBI. The FBI has historically gone over uh, after left-leaning groups, murdering Fred Hampton and the like. And 85% of its budget is actually focused on pursuing uh, left activists, left-leaning individuals. Uh, have you made any moves to actually pursue legislation that would get get to the bottom of what your goals are there, or was it, as many people argued at the time, a kind of performative call? that was more linked from your perspective to um, absolving uh, Donald Trump from the kinds of interrogations that were happening against him?
5: Mm, no, not, not performative at all. Um, I, I really don't have time for anything like that. I didn't come to Washington to, to be a performer. I came here to make real changes for our country, and um, it's been a difficult change in my life to do so. But I think these changes are very important. I don't think our nation's uh, law enforcement or Department of Justice should be used uh, as a political weapon. That's the weaponization of government. And that's something that should terrify every single American, no matter how they vote. And, and again, the Republican Party has the opportunity to make changes in the budget and the appropriations uh, bills that we pass. And that's where I think that we can make changes like that. And I'm going to work very hard in my conference uh, using the power of my voting card um, to vote for a budget or appropriation bills uh, to be sure that we can hold the FBI accountable and the Department of Justice accountable. And I just think that's the right thing to do.
3: Hmm. Have you considered reaching out to any left-leaning members of Congress who share some skepticism, perhaps, about the FBI, for instance, uh, going after these members of the African Socialist People's Party, arresting a member last summer, and now going after four of them as uh, Russian Russian agents? Uh,
5: this is a story um, I'm, I'm not familiar with. Uh, I'm familiar with stories like the FBI targeting parents that are trying to hold their school boards accountable, the FBI targeting pro-life protesters, people just praying outside of abortion clinics. Um, I'm familiar with the FBI targeting people that that walked in the Capitol. Um, you know, they didn't commit any violence. They didn't attack Capitol Police officers. They just walked in open doors and they're still arresting them every single day. So I apologize. I'm not familiar with that story. Um, Of course, I would love to talk to Democrat lawmakers, um, but tragically, they really aren't interested in talking to me very much.
0: Hmm. That's a shame. It seems like there's some potential for compatibility on holding law enforcement accountable, whether they've uh, mistreated people on the right or on the left. Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We really appreciate it.
5: Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it.
0: their Thanksgiving break. We have a great show for you today, starting with an interview with Dr. Jeffrey Sachs.
3: We talked to Dr. Sachs earlier this week about Ukraine, Nord Stream, and government spending. Here's our conversation about COVID-19.
0: Switching topics um, a little bit, I saw it just reported uh, that the U.S. um, Army is going to start um, inviting people who were discharged for refusing the COVID vaccine um, to have their records um, Cleansed of that uh, at a po- at a time where we're trying to build back up the U.S. Army, they're struggling with recruitment drives everywhere. You know, at a dangerous time in the world where there's all these conflicts um, going on. Um, wh- what is your thinking about how the narrative around um, compelling people on certain health issues with respect to COVID has uh, has changed over the last um, several years of the pandemic?
6: Well, I got to look at this uh, closely as uh, chairman of a commission for the medical journal Lancet. And the sad part of this, not with respect to the vaccine, per se, but with respect to the origin of the virus, is that it's yet another case of massive government lying. So we have since discovered from the start that What uh, the government told us about the quote unquote natural origins of this virus were hokey and really amounting to scientific fraud actually because a number of scientists produced a a study in March uh, 2020, March 2020, uh, called the proximal origins of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes uh, COVID-19, claiming that it was overwhelming evidence that it was natural. And we now know that they didn't even believe that as they were writing it because they knew that there were so many hints uh, that this could well have come out of a U.S. lab or out of a Chinese lab or out of a U.S.-China partnership in the research. So the problem with trusting anything is when we have secretive government that is telling us lies it just generates a huge amount of distrust about everything.
3: Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things I find about you is that because you were uh, in your position at Lancet and because you're one of the few uh, people who who were calling out um, the possibility that lab leak origin theory was legitimate early, uh, and you're one of the few people in that space who was more left-coded as opposed to right-coded, I think there was a lot of much-needed credibility Um, that you brought to the conversation as people were questioning whether or not to follow what the mainstream media was saying at the time, which was that to even entertain lab leak theory meant you were a conspiracy theorist or whether to treat it seriously. Now that we're in a different place in the discourse where many more people are treating it seriously, I wonder what you think the gaps are uh, in in kind of the public reporting in terms of continuing to pursue um, answers about who is responsible Lab League. Robbie and I have these conversations often where there's often a focus on Dr. Fauci who is, of course, no longer in office. Um, and there's this kind of open question, where do we go next? Where should the in- investigation go? Uh, and should Democrats not be leaving this investigation largely up to the right side of the aisle?
6: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, I fell right into the mainstream story at the beginning, because there was this important publication uh, in Nature, which is a major scientific uh, journal, that said overwhelming evidence, it was natural. So I spent the first uh, months explaining to my friends, oh, all this stuff about conspiracy uh, is uh, coming out of a lab and so forth. There's so much hokum and political manipulation. And then I'm chair of a commission. So uh, studying this step by step and being briefed by scientists and, and then watching the wonderful work of uh, not the mainstream media, which completely neglected this, but the intercept and us right to know and whistleblowers who started letting us in on what was really said inside was shocking. And at one point I confronted one of the people on my own commission, and said, Show me such and such document. He said, Oh, my lawyers say I, I can't show you that. And I said, Well, you can't be on the commission. We're a transparent yeah. commission. And I began to really see close up that there was so much lying coming out of NIH, coming out of Fauci, coming out of, uh, unfortunately, uh, the, the government protecting all of this. And now it's spilling out. But what is True to this moment, weirdly, the Democrats don't wanna look. So where Congress is looking is on the House side where there's a majority Republicans who in the House Oversight Committee are looking into this, but on the Senate side with the Democratic majority, it is absolutely circle the wagons around Fauci, who's not even there, or around NIH or around God knows what, and as, as a, someone who has been a lifelong Democrat, but I've left the party because I don't want to have anything to do with either oh, of these parties right now, uh, I have to say that it's shocking to me that Democratic senators can't understand this is not a partisan issue. This is a life and death issue. What kind of research is going on? What kind of laboratory manipulations going on? what is going on under what we euphemistically I probably or perhaps call our biodefense research because who knows what it really is Hmm. but I have gotten to understand well that there is a tremendous amount of dangerous research that is not supervised and it would behoove our democratic senators as well as the republicans to find out what's happening this is not about getting Fauci this is not about The past, this is about right now. What is happening in these laboratories? Because the fact of the matter is, our very, very clever scientists know all about manipulating viruses. They know all about gain-of-function research. They know how to construct new viruses that are extremely dangerous by putting in pieces into existing viruses, pieces like the now infamous furin cleavage site, which is part of the genome of the COVID virus that makes it so infectious. And that was the object of research by US scientists precisely to see if you put that piece into an existing virus, what happens to it? Well, duh, isn't that research a little dangerous? But that research was going on, we know. And that is what makes many people think this came out of a lab and the most ingenious people who made those systems. I don't know whether I should name names, but we've got scientists in the United States that do this, that are at the cutting edge, that were under Fauci's funding and in his shop and working with the laboratories like Rocky Mountain Lab and others. And there's just a lot of reason to open those books to scrutiny right now. And I can tell you Senator Rand Paul has been trying on the Senate side to get some Democrats to not view this as a partisan issue, but as an urgent scientific and practical issue. And he asked me to talk to my Democratic Senator friends over the years, and they will not touch this. Mm -hmm. What is going on? This is not a partisan issue. And it's a shame on the Democrats in the Senate that they will not open a proper investigation because it's not about the past, it's about now. What research is going on? What is this biodefense research? What is NIH funding? What is this manipulation taking place? We need to know this.
0: Yeah, it's one of the most important questions ever asked, how this disease that killed millions of people originated. And you're absolutely right that it need not be a partisan issue. It's not an issue, frankly... Uh, blessedly, that puts the Democratic Party or the Republican Party more in trouble if it turns out absolutely. one way, except for the fact that Democrats have decided to some made this conscious decision to be the party that defends, I guess, health bureaucrats or shields them from accountability, which is which is a huge shame. And and that that's the stake now. But you're you're absolutely right that it doesn't need to be that way at all. And this should be basic accountability. And I, I'm I'm glad to hear you've You've worked and tried to open the books. I want to I know, you know, what the Energy Department knows that led them to their, to their conclusion. If the government has better evidence than we've been shown about the early infection of the scientists at the lab, that was something the Wall Street Journal's mentioned and others. I would love to see that, that intelligence. And actually, right, Congress voted to declassify it, and Biden signed it, and then we still didn't really get it. So it's a, it's a yeah. frustrating amount of, um, of shielding from the public what they ought to know.
6: Robbie, it it is so incredible that this became a partisan issue. I could never have guessed, maybe it's the lack of my imagination, why Democrats would think that an honest accounting is somehow a, a pro Republican position. So, you know, hope springs eternal. Today, Democrats in the Senate, come on, we need to understand what's going on and we need to understand what kind of dangerous research is underway, and we need to understand where this virus came from. Open the books at University of North Carolina. Open the books at Rocky Mountain Labs. Understand the funding by the United States of the teams from University of North Carolina and other universities with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Let's understand what really Mm -hmm. happened.
0: Dr. Sachs, thank you so much for joining us.
6: Uh, Great to be with you. Thank you.
0: Hello and happy Thanksgiving from everyone here at Rising. Brianna and I will be back to bring you the latest news next week. In the meantime, enjoy this flashback from earlier this year. Jill Stein is running for president once again, announcing last Thursday that she would seek the Green Party nomination for the second time.
3: Stein's entry into the race has rattled some Democratic operatives who still blame her for Hillary Clinton's loss in 2016. Stein joins a bevy of candidates targeting President Joe Biden from the left and center, including RFK Jr., Marianne Williamson, Cornell West, Dean Phillips, and Cenk Uygur. Here to discuss why she thinks she would be a better presidential candidate than the alternatives and her thoughts on third-party candidates more broadly is Dr. Jill Stein. Welcome to the show really great to be with you both.
7: Thanks
0: Getting so in, well. a, in a I'm commercial sorry. for your own <laughs> podcast there. I, I'm not going to let you get off with that. I
3: know. I've talked to Dr. Stein so many times on Bad Faith that I had a, I had a brain a oh, brain I fart. Welcome to Rising. Um, start by telling us the answer this question. There are um, a lot more left candidates uh, in the race than we typically have. And uh, obviously, many people thought they would be voting for uh, Cornell West as the Green Party candidate until recently. Now they're going to be presented with this choice between, I think, I think two really principled leftists, Cornell West running as an independent and yourself as the Green Party candidate. How should people decide?
7: Well, that is the uh, question of the hour. Um, will the candidates be on the ballot? Mm. And part of what compelled me to jump into the race was in order to ensure that we will have a fervently pro-worker, anti-war, climate emergency agenda that's front and center in this election. And which is on the ballot across the nation. And <clears throat> as you may know, it's no simple matter to get on the ballot. We've done that before. And um, in the last race uh, in 2016, uh, my campaign was on the ballot for 95% of voters in 47 uh, states and the District of Columbia. Uh, and so, you know, I really felt having done this work for so many years to ensure that the voices of everyday people have a fighting chance in this election and that we have ballot access. If you don't have ballot access, you you may have a very powerful message, but you're not actually contesting for power and you're not holding uh, empire and oligarchy to account. So fundamentally, so, yeah. that's why I'm in the race to ensure that we are there and on the ballot. So at the end of the day, my suspe- my suspicion is that there are gonna be very few uh, candidates that are pro-worker, anti-war, and um, climate emergency uh, oriented who are offering a choice on the ballot.
3: So then do you think it was a mistake, a strategic mistake for Dr. West to choose to leave the Green Party and run as an independent?
7: So I don't want to question his you know, motives and his strategy. I think he does what's right for himself and he has a huge contribution that he's already made and that he will continue to make. I think his courageous, uh, powerful voice is very important in the election, and I'm really grateful that he is there, and I hope he stays in it uh, as long as possible. But he he basically gave up $4 million worth of ballot lines, and I did not want to see them go to waste, which mm. is why I jumped in. Uh, we have another million to go, but we're about 80% of the way there in terms of the cost of this battle. So... Um, you know, it, it's going to be very challenging for him to actually put his campaign on the ballot.
0: Right. And that's not an endorsement. It's just a it's just reality that it is so difficult. It's difficult to run outside of the two party duopoly. Um, I'm a supporter of the Libertarian Party and the Green Party. It's difficult for them. but And then it's even more difficult to run without uh, the access that those parties do in, in the states to actually be voted for. Um, I, I wanted to get your reaction to—we're um, hearing again a lot of what we heard in 2016 after Hillary Clinton's defeat um, about third. what they said about you then. It was all your fault. <laughs> we're hearing that again about these third-party challengers. There was a lot of noise about RFK Jr. Now that he's actually not in the Democratic primaries, I, I think there's a perhaps accurate perception that he might actually hurt Trump more than Biden, so there's not as much noise about that, but a lot of noise about—about um, Cornell West and, and you, presuming you become the Green Party nominee. How do you respond to these uh, ostensibly pro-democracy pundits, commentators, who say that giving um, the people more chance, more choices, is uh, somehow bad for democracy?
7: Well, I think you've said it right there. You know, it's it's utterly ludicrous, preposterous, and laughable that those who purport to be advocating for democracy are saying that people shouldn't have choices. You know, people are clamoring for choices. We know that seventy-five percent more than that actually say that we are headed in the wrong direction under our current, you know, uh, powers that be uh, over sixty percent. Of voters are saying that the two parties have failed us and that we need a party that actually serves the people. So, you know, where do you come off even suggesting that it's good for democracy to limit people's choices? Uh, it's very important that voters have a choice in order for our vote to be meaningful and that elections be an exercise in, in freedom of choice. If they're not, it's just not a democracy. And can I add that this presumption that your vote as a voter that democrats own your vote or republicans for that matter the idea that anyone owns your vote is preposterous candidates have to earn your vote no one owns your vote and the fact that the democrats are trying to you know beat this dead horse again you know speaks volumes about where they're coming from how out of touch they are you know what drove voters away from the democratic party look at what was effectively the mother of all spoiled elections, that was 2010. What happened in 2010? Democrats lost 1,000 state rep seats. They lost 64 uh, congressional seats. I believe 12 senate seats and 13 um, governor seats. You know, kind of that's that really spoiled their grip on power. There were no third parties to blame that on. What happened? You know, what happened was that the Democrats uh, threw working people under the bus. In the years prior, with the uh, crash of 2008 and the bailout of Wall Street, and millions of families were uh, thrown out of their homes. So, you know, that's that's what's driving uh, political trends here. And for the Democrats to try to blame that on candidates and parties like the one I represent is ludicrous, because we're actually providing the solutions to what's driving people you know, running and screaming from the Democratic Party.
3: Hilariously, I don't know if you saw this, but a few days ago, Jennifer Rubin was on MSNBC and she blamed you for something new. She blamed you, she said, but for you, Al Gore <laughs> would have been president back in 2000. She obviously got her numbers crossed, but it does, I think, speak to people's um, uh, uh, real urge to, to, to throw your name around when they're making excuses for the Democratic Party's own failures. Uh, I did want to ask you about some issues that are important. And, and, and I mean, can I just oh, also ahead, throw in, you know,
7: I think we sort of caught them off guard. They didn't expect this. So now they're just trying to recycle all the smears mm-hmm. that they've used in my prior two races. And those smears are really out of steam. They've been proven absolutely false and ridiculous. So they're kind of left defenseless, um, you know, and they have no one to blame but themselves. Yeah, Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry.
3: Well, I was just going to ask you. Um, I do think a lot of the interest of our audience, a lot of the attention on someone like RFK Jr. and even Vivek Ramaswamy, is because there is a, I think, populist-rooted interest in protecting speech rights uh, to oppose what is are perceived as authoritarian policies with respect to. COVID, for instance, and that candidates that have been, um, I think, anti establishment on those issues have found a lot of space in the political sphere. And I do wonder what your and the Green Party's stance is on those kinds of issues. I believe the Green Party, because of its association with um, environmental interests and rights, can sometimes be framed as a kind, of, um, a kind of big government nanny state sort of a party. So I wanted to get you on the record talking about what you make of the public interest in candidates like RFK Jr., who have at least up until the conflict in Gaza, been stridently uh, anti-war. Talked a lot about free speech issues. Been very concerned about censorship on the internet, uh, even uh, including with respect to COVID-related censorship and the like.
7: Yeah, um, you know, I take all those concerns very seriously. And you know, when we present our campaign, we talk about um, you know three or four really central crises. So we have crushing inequality, endless war, climate collapse, and really a crisis of democracy. And that crisis democracy uh, is really present all across the board. And in particular, it is an assault on our constitutional rights. And whether you look at the, um, You know, the proliferation of very dangerous censorship, the assault on our rights of protest, you know, the attack on environmental um, protesters, for example, in in Cop City, you know, who are being uh, really uh, prosecuted as uh, terrorists, Um, you know, the assault on our privacy rights. You know, I think this is absolutely fundamental and foundational. And the Democratic and Republican parties both are, you know, are the... um, you know are are perpetrating this assault on our civil liberties our civil rights and really the very foundations of democracy many of the crises that we're facing right now i think can be very directly connected to this complete i don't want to just say loss of faith but it's you know it's a complete um cynicism uh and um uh, uh just annoyance you know this this fury and resentment at The institutions of government. You know, if you look at polls now, we're at rock bottom in uh, confidence in really virtually all of the institutions of government, whether it's judicial, legislative, uh, the presidency, uh, the mainstream media, you name it, we're at rock bottom. And in our Declaration of Independence, you know, it states that all just power derives from consent of the governed, and the governed do not consent. So I think that solving all of our problems. You know, it it can't be done unless we're also addressing this absolute assault on our institutions of democracy.
0: Can you uh, quickly address what you think the U.S. policy should be toward um, the Ukraine-Russia conflict and the Israel-Gaza-Palestine conflict, given that that's foreign policy looms so large in the news right now?
7: Absolutely. You know, I think both of these wars uh, were avoidable and are the outcome of um, uh, extremely uh, destructive, misguided policy uh, on the part of the US and its allies for many years, you know, whether you're looking at the expansion of NATO, um, that really was predicted by virtually everyone uh, across the political spectrum uh, to be pushing Russia into a, um, you know, a war uh consider if we had nuclear-capable missiles on our border, you know, we would not be uh, sitting pretty. And, you know, so Russia is doing what's, you know, uh, horrific and to be condemned. And I have condemned it. But on the other hand, this was a very provoked war and it could have been stopped. And it, uh, as well as, you know, it could have been resolved very early on. We know there was an effort on the part of Turkey to create a... Um, uh, a peace process, which was actually going well until the U.S. and the U.K. disrupted it. Um, and likewise, uh, in Israel and Gaza, it's, you know, Israel has been in flagrant violation of international law with the apartheid and um, ethnic cleansing that's been going on for decades. And the U.S. has given it, a you know, a blank check, both in terms of Uh, providing I think it's like hundred and sixty billion dollars more than we have provided in military aid to any country uh, and also providing diplomatic cover so you know what we're asking for here is not rocket science we're asking for compliance with international law uh, and human rights on the part of all parties and we have to do this in a hurry not only that you know millions of lives are at stake and that's especially evident right now in Gaza where Uh, You know, mothers, babies, and elders are about two-thirds of this 11,000 people who've been uh, brutally slaughtered uh, at this point, where uh, ethnic cleansing is being uh, practiced. You know, these pauses are basically just to move people out. Uh, For the most part, they might be bringing in a trickle of supplies, but they're basically to implement the plan of ethnic cleansing. where. uh, where uh, collective punishment is being practiced, where news organizations and international uh, media offices are being targeted, and hospitals and healthcare centers—it's just, you know, it's just uh, horrifying what's going on. But it's not just the people of Gaza who are at risk; Israel is at risk because it is making itself a pariah among nations, and in particular among its neighbors who are armed and who are, you know, fleeing. They're carefully developed, you know, much uh, hard-won relations with Israel right now. Things are just going to hell in a handbasket. So it's not just for uh, the Palestinians whose rights are being, uh, you know, just completely bulldozed and have been for uh, for decades, Mm -hmm. but it's also the long-term concerns of Israel. You know, I have many ties to Israel. My background is Jewish. And you know, I grew up uh, going to Sunday school every Sunday uh, as a reformed Jew. My grandparents came to this country fleeing pogroms in Eastern Europe. Uh, my grandfather's name is Israel. So you know, I have family ties, strong family ties to Israel here. And I don't want to see uh, Israel go up in flames any more than anyone else you know but what's going on now is absolutely a disaster for all parties and it's really important that i think we uh invoke our higher selves and step up to what international law and human rights requires of us this isn't rocket science but you're not going to see the right thing happen when you know when congress is in the pocket of apac and you know, and uh, the war industry, who are the real beneficiaries? And if I could say one more thing, the fact that we changed the channel from Ukraine, which was like the most important thing that warranted 115 billion and counting in our resources, while child poverty doubled, while you know, uh, you know, one out of every four Americans doesn't have enough food. You know, the fact that Ukraine uh, and funding the military needs of Ukraine in particular was the most important thing. bar none, forget about, you know, the survival and health and and welfare of the American people. That was the most important thing until suddenly we had a shiny new war. And now the whole war industry and the um, war profiteers are perfectly happy with this new one. So who exactly is driving this show? You know, this is um, this is impoverishing us as Americans. It's also endangering us. Consider that there is a nuclear submarine now sitting off the coast of Gaza. What's in a nuclear submarine? Well, my understanding is that nuclear submarines generally hold nuclear weapons. And in fact, an Ohio class nuclear sub, which is the one that's out there, holds 4,000 Hiroshima bombs, the equivalent. It doesn't hold 4,000 bombs, but it holds the equivalent of 4,000 Hiroshima's. Some people may say, oh, well, no worries. That's over there. We're over here. But unfortunately, that's not the case. That's not how this quantity of firepower works. There's enough firepower on that nuclear submarine basically to cause nuclear winter, You know, which happens when you kick up a whole lot of dust into the atmosphere, it dims the sunlight um, uh, right away. And basically agricultural production uh, takes a nosedive. So what would 400 bombs worth? And I'm not saying that's the likely scenario, but it is a possible scenario. And it just, it makes the point here that we too are in the target hairs because that is enough firepower to basically starve one out of every three um, people on the planet. That is a huge hit of nuclear winter, which basically spells the end Mm. of human civilization. So we cannot go to war in this day and age, and we cannot risk war without understanding that we are in the target hairs. And Mm. I think that fundamentally changes how people will see that when they understand both the risks of war as well as the costs of war.
0: Well, Dr. Stein, we're unfortunately out of time, but we'd love to have you back on again to uh, further discuss your platform. Thank you so much for joining us.
7: My pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Brianna and I will be back to bring you the latest news next week. In the meantime, enjoy this flashback from earlier this year. Legendary reporter Seymour Hersh is here with us today to talk about his bombshell report on who blew up Nord Stream, his report uh, pointing fingers at the U.S. involvement in the destruction of the pipeline. He says the CIA blew it up and lied about it, and he's here with us to expand on his reporting and respond to criticisms. Great to see you, Mr. Hersh. Thank you so much.
8: Sure, let's start with my criticism about what you just said. Go for it. I didn't say the CIA it. lied about it. I said the White House, the, the President of the United States and the White House is lying about it, but that's okay. Both of them. Let's so, go. So
0: tell us about the, the process of reporting the story. Uh, you have one uh, so, uh, anonymous uh, source, a source whose, whose information is, not, is known to you, but is not uh, identified in the actual uh, report. Can you tell us anything about... Mm, th- th- that source or maybe a documentation they were able to provide to you that made you confident oh. in what that person was telling you was accurate?
8: Oh, if I did, I'd just be out of business. You know, and uh, I've been doing this for a long time with unnamed sources. It, it all depends on where you, when you do it, when you don't do it. When I was at the New York Times, some of the great stories, uh, many of the, the stories that were very important or at least generated a lot of news. In one case, the congressional hearings, uh, the church hearings into the CIA, I, I had no no-named sources. But that time, you know, that was then, and this is now. So now there's a lot of criticism, uh, and I understand that. Um, um, uh, I, I can't talk about my source, other than if, if you read the story carefully, uh, um, uh, as I, I'm sure you did. Um, uh, I, the person that's talking to me, uh, if, you, if you're trying to figure out who he is, he's never, he or she is never in a meeting. They're just describing what they know. And that's not uh, inadvertent. That's, you know, that's just the way you protect people. And uh, because there, a lot of people could know things. Um, it wasn't all CIA. It was a, a joint group that was set up at the direction of Jake Sullivan, the, um, uh, the National Security Advisor. And in a nutshell, I'll just tell you what happened. Um, it's, it's the fall of 2021. The Russians are already the, the the Putins, but let's just stick with Putin. Putin is already lining up his troops in, in Belarus, and it's clear that he's probably going to go. And the there's a meeting convened. Uh, Jake convenes the meeting. Um, uh, I would assume at the at the at the request of the president, uh, Joe Biden, and he brings in a bunch of high level people from the community. You know, the NSA, CIA, uh, uh, State Department, Joint Chiefs of Staff, what you will. Treasury Department they have, they supply the money. And they meet in a very secure room in the executive office building everybody in washington knows what that is it's on the compound right next to the uh, white house itself where most of the offices are and the issue is uh, they started in december of 2021 and the question they have and this is a a word a word of art is um, uh, this is language that is known inside the community whether what we want to produce, this group, are actions and recommendations that are reversible or irreversible. If they're reversible, we're talking about sanctions, etc. If they're irreversible, you're talking about kinetic stuff. And eventually, it, over the next couple of weeks, it emerged that the issue was, of course, the decision was going to be uh, something uh, kinetic. And it eventually, I'm talking about by January, uh, there was a fix on the pipelines could be it, we could hit the pipelines. The worry was, always, as, as most, well, most people don't know, Nord Stream 1, there are two pipelines that go supply gas, really a very low price and a huge amount of gas, to industrial Germany. The first pipeline began in 2011. It was called Nord Stream 1. And historically, going back to the Kennedy years, and certainly in the Bush-Cheney years, and certainly in this government, and when Joe Biden was in the was vice president, he chaired a group on this. The worry we always had about Russia, always with its great resources of natural gas, uh, they, they have uh, from way they just have tons of it, gas and um, and and oil, and um, uh, the worry was that, that Russia was weaponizing this gas. It was using it to get leverage in West Germany, West Western Europe, and Germany, and that was always something that was a problematical uh, for us. We did we we wanted to keep Russia from having energy power. And so it's, and so, the same thing happened in this White House, And the meeting, the idea was, what do you do with it? And so one of the options the group came up with, they said, we can blow them. Uh, I don't know how far they were, but this was obviously by mid-January of 2022, and by this time the Russians have as many as 100,000 troops coming. If they're not there then, they're there within a few weeks, they're going. And, and uh, we know it. And uh, to the amazement of the group that was, um, had been assembled, and uh, I assure you that the president and others didn't have hands-on feeling about it. You don't do it that way; they're, they're always isolated. Uh, uh, they had began their. Uh, they they said it can be done, and that, to their amazement, Victoria Newland, the Under Secretary of State, in last, last in uh, last January, um, again when Russia hasn't come, she gives she at a news conference. She said, "I assure you, if if this if the Russians come." Nord Stream 2 will not exist, it's a brand new, it was the second pipe, Nord Stream 2 was the second gas pipe that was finished, uh, built, uh, took ten, eight, ten years, billions of dollars, it was ready to go by early, two, late 2021, and the Germans sanctioned it, they cut it down, it was full with gas, but the Germans, they didn't pump, because the German government, obviously under pressure from us, um, uh, froze it, so it was just sitting there full of gas on, on uh, 750 miles one pipeline, seven hundred they both were 750 miles or so, all the way from uh, r- from a corner of Russia near St. Uh, uh, Leningrad, St. Petersburg, all the way down to the tip of uh, a city in, in um, western, I think, uh, uh, uh-huh. uh, Germany. I get my map mixed up all the time. Anyway, um, it, was, it just was, uh, for the Germans, it was manna. There was so much gas, even on Nord Stream 1, that the German Uh, um, uh, German companies that had an interest, uh, there was, Nord Stream was controlled by um, uh, 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 Russian oligarchs, Gazprom, they owned 51% of it, which means that a lot of the money was kicked back into the Russian uh, uh, treasury, of course it was, billions every year. But 49% of the pipeline was owned by four Western companies, and they all had stock. And those Western companies, there was enough gas for them to sell it to other Mm-hmm. People dealing in in uh, home gas heating, etc. Uh, downstream, they call it. It was that much. It was a it was a bonanza, and the second pipeline was ready to go, and that would have been um, made the Russian ability uh, in the eyes of the White House, and not only this White House but other White Houses all along. Weapon weaponization of the gas. Yeah. So she then, well, but- for reasons unknown, at a news conference said, "If Russia goes, uh, if 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 Russia attacks." Nord Stream 2, by one way or another, I don't, that's co- very close to the exact language, will be, will will not go. Mr. And Hirsch, then a couple of weeks later.
3: What you're describing, I think, is the circumstances that show that the incentives here point really against Russia. And of course, the investigations, the independent investigations that have already taken place, have found no, um, you know, evidence that Russia was at all involved. And in fact, as you've described, there's plenty. Of, there's a conflict of interest that you've described between Germany and, and Western Europe, who are, could be the beneficiaries of, of Russian, of cheap Russian oil, and the United States, who has these broader. Um, security concerns in terms of its own proxy war with Russia. So I want to get back to, if we can, this issue of the people who are criticizing you on the basis of the source. And I wondered if you could give us any more insight into what you—not any, obviously, uh, facts about who the source is or, or any identifying information, but what made you feel confident about the source's firsthand knowledge. Uh, and the accuracy of the knowledge that the source presented to you. Obviously, there's a great deal of um, kind of factual detail about how strategically the plan was carried out. But in terms of the source representing—confirming that the source was who they represented, that they were in a position where they would have had firsthand knowledge of the events that they described to you, um, can you tell us anything about what assured you that the source was accurately representing their firsthand knowledge?
8: I've been in this business with sources like this for 50 years. Um, when I first did b uh, there was, you know, overwhelmingly disapproval of what I wrote. And most of the stories I wrote that were controversial has always been attacked. on the, on the, you know, it's, it's easy to get rid of something on the basis of anonymity. And so um, uh, you have to understand um, there's, there's no alternatives. Either people, the people I've known inside, um, have one thing in common, uh, and, and mili- whether military or civilian, and that is they really understand that they've taken their oath of office to, not to not to the their boss, not to the general or admiral, uh, and not to not to the president, but to the Constitution. And those are people that, when they get troubled by things that are going on, have talked to me. And this has been going on. I've done this for 50 years. So on the and uh, I'm not interested in committing suicide, and I certainly knew. The uh, I, I can't, I, you're getting me, I don't even want to talk about what I know. I wrote the story, and I'll, you know, I'll give you a hypothetical if you want. I'll give you a question to ask. Sure. You know, next time somebody at the White House briefing who doesn't want to be, doesn't want to be called again, uh, called on again for the next two months, why don't they ask the president, hey, or the White House, or the White House, whatever, the press spokesman, whoever it is there, why don't they ask him, say, you know what, this happened, in September the 26th, last year, and um, uh, uh, nobody knew what did happen, but four days later, uh, Jake Sullivan gave a a, a briefing, and he was asked about it, and he said, well, he he read, you know, somebody asked if they thought Russia did it, and he said the usual things. Nobody likes Russia in that White House, and and certainly in that CIA, as far as I can tell, from the spokesman. And um, what he said is, well, there's two countries are looking at it, uh, Sweden and Norway, and there we'll see what happens with their investigation. Uh, it's not Sweden and Norway, Sweden and Denmark. The Norwegians who were very involved with us haven't said, have said nothing. And so a month later, sure enough, the the Swedes, the Swedes and the Danes issued a report saying that after they studied it, they concluded that indeed something had happened under the water. There had been an explosion. That was the extent of their investigation. So what the White House has, what the president has, if he really wants to know. He's got something called the Office of National Intelligence, which is the highest level office, uh, on, oversees all of the intelligence in the United States government. And they have an office of, uh, the, the, the ONI, they have an incredibly good, competent uh, head of, uh, of intelligence there. He could have, what the phrase they use inside is, tasked those people to do a study. If he chose also to really dig, he could have asked the CIA, which has a director of intelligence that does terrific work. I will tell you, very solid stuff. You could have asked the CIA to do a study. And there's also a secret, another third intelligence group that nobody talks much about when we have a COVID operation, an an agent, that's an uh, operation like this, that's undercover. They have their own intelligence. And we're talking about really all source. If you have people overseas doing stuff uh, that are tricky, you want to really protect them. And so why don't you ask if they ever ask the community for a study? Because I'll tell you what the answer is. They never did. And so why don't you think they did? Well, and, and, I and, and Mr. Wondered. Hirsch,
0: uh, how would you respond to? Uh, there's been some reporting I've seen that the ships you said that, that were used, the Norwegian ships. There's some conflicting GPS data showing, uh, suggesting that they were not actually in the the area. How would you respond to that part of the criticism?
8: It's called um, um, it's O-Sink. You know, it's uh, uh, open open source intelligence, which is a big part of the community. Uh, they started that 40 years ago. In other words. They would put out a report the CIA, this is after World War II when they were first going and discovered that a lot of what they reported was in, in the open sources. And so if you're, in a, if you're doing a covert operation and you're talking about people that uh, open source relies on signals, it doesn't have photographs of the ships there, they have, rely on signals. And they also rely on airplanes that, uh, every airplane has a transponder. And uh, which is it's sort of an IDF, it gives us, it lets everybody know where they are at all times. Well, if you watched, if you read the paper carefully, when the president went to um, Kiev, uh, when his plane was flying, I think in the pole from into Poland, guess what they did? It was in the newspaper. They turned off their transponder. And so, I will tell you the trouble with open source intelligence. I've said this to a few people, including one of the guys writing it. But you know, when when you're when you're really into computer and computer analysis. Um, uh, the first thing you do in an operation like that is you use open source as a cover. Helps you. You invent boats that aren't there. You have airplanes that turn off transponder, which means you can't be seen. It's really as simple as that. Mm. They're, they're. I'm being also attacked. They're claiming that the boat. Somebody claimed that the boat, uh, the class of the boat wasn't there. But we can. The guys who know what they're doing, they can turn everything topsy turvy. They can create boats. Signals of boats. So it's that's what you do before a mission like that. That's the answer to it. It's really very simple. If those people had asked anybody in the community, they would have told you the first thing you do is manipulate the the in, the ongoing intelligence. In fact, what they had up there was the same plane that the president had when he was in Kiev. It's called a, a River Joint. It's a uh, basically a National Security Agency uh, uh, Air Force wing. It's a, a, a old seven zero seven that flies. On the border of Russia, uh, collecting radar signals. They had uh, the president had what well, is in the paper. They had uh, a river joint uh, surveillance plane from the. Uh, as I said, um, there in case he has to get a signal out of an emergency, and it's is there's a direct line. They had that up and during this mission, in case the guys, the the divers or the crew of the ship or something happened, they could communicate. Uh, it's it's so it's it's. Um, Uh, You know, I don't want to break the hearts of OSINT people because a lot of it is very useful, particularly in, mostly in in, uh, tracking airplane crashes and stuff like that. Um, But when it comes to COVID intelligence operators, they're actually part of the cover.
3: Hmm. Uh, Well, National Security Council uh, spokesperson John Kirby, as I'm sure you're aware, has repeatedly uh, denied the United States was involved in the explosions that damaged these pipelines. He told Fox News Sunday, quote, It's a completely false story. There is no truth to it, not a shred of it. It is not true. The United States, no proxies of the United States had anything to do with that. Uh, Can you comment directly uh, on that statement, your, your, your friend, he describes himself as your friend, Ray McGovern, recently uh, gave uh, remarks at the UN Security Council and basically said uh, these kind of CIA PR statements aren't to be trusted. What's your response?
8: Well, yeah, you have to identify Ray a little better. Uh, he was in the CIA for many years, and he was probably the key guy when we were doing a lot of talks about, with the Russians on, um, on, on treaties. He spent 27 years in the CIA as an intelligence officer and got to be a level that he was sort of the go-to guy when, when we were negotiating uh, various uh, ABM treaties with the Soviet Union. So he does, he does know a little more than that. John Kirby's a nice guy. I used to work, John was uh, in the Pentagon. Uh, when I was at the New Yorker after, after 9-11, I wrote a lot of stories that were heatedly denied uh, by the White House when I was at, working for the New Yorker. This was in the days of Cheney and Bush. And I always liked John. He's a very good guy. And um, I, I did talk to him about the story long before I wrote it. Let him know what I was doing, and he told you know uh, I was off the record, so it doesn't matter. But um, he didn't say anything anything other than than, uh, than than what he said publicly. But there was other stuff he talked about. And uh, um, uh, he'll be the first if you asked him um, if there were an operation like this, would the spokesman for the Joint the JC? I mean, the spokesman wouldn't know. Why would you tell him? Mm. Why would you tell the spokesman anything? Why would even internally would you talk about it? This is, I mean— So you think he <laughs> genuinely
0: does not know, that he, he's, he, he's not lying there, he doesn't know?
8: No, no, he's not a liar. He's, not, he's asked and he's told, no, nothing happened. I mean, I, sh- I don't know if he's asked or not. I'm sure he has. But why, why would he be told? Why would—I right. uh, think I said very early, the way they run this operation, the people in the field in Norway or wherever they are in the United States. Are, are isolated, uh, you, the last thing you want to do with something like this is you know, you, is uh, uh, telling the principals, uh, uh, can I give you a reason why? In January they told the principals that they could do something and within uh, three weeks both uh, Victoria Newland blabbed about it and said we'll get it one way or the other and the president himself said at a briefing on February the 7th, we can take it out and if they go, we will take it out. I don't know why the press forgets that language but it horrified the people who were just beginning to get organized on it, because it it just was to them it was, it's the most secret thing in the world, and the the, the undersecretary of state and the president of the United States are uh, the word used to me was blabbing about it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You, you mentioned just a, a minute ago that, you know, you you have this long history of writing for outlets like uh, The New Yorker. It, did you approach any of the kind of, you know, mainstream type organizations or, or media outlets you've worked with in the past with this story and try to get it published there? Did they reject it you, or, or were you just going to do this on your own for Substack? Can you tell us anything about the editorial process?
8: Sure. Sure. Um, um. I don't think I could have got the Mili story published now. Things have changed a lot because of Trump. As you know, I'm not, I'm not telling anybody that knows, there's Fox News and the New York Post and other papers like that. And then there's the Washington Post and the New York Times. Uh, actually, the, neither one of those papers mentioned my story. It's been out for a couple of weeks, but I'm, I, I'm telling you, I'm getting massacred by calls from overseas on it. I mean, I, I really am. Um, uh, 350, 400 emails today. Half of them from overseas news outlets. It's different there. I think the Washington Post. I'm told I haven't seen it. Had a story today that for the first time, mentioned what I did in the but There was a, a, a Security Council meeting about this yesterday,
5: mm-hmm.
8: and um, the New York Times hasn't mentioned it yet. I, I, I just, I, I see what's going on. The polarization of the press that didn't exist. I joined the Times in '72 because, um, and I, I could. I I got, there was no question about what I could do. The halcyon days, it's different now. And no, I never thought of approaching either paper because I didn't think they would publish it. Particularly because they want to know the source. And um, uh, uh, I always told the editors the source and um, uh, I got burned once uh, at the New York Times that way. I don't want, I don't like talking about it because the New York Times is still a good newspaper and a lot of fine reporters. I've always been convinced that 90% of the editors, if they were fired, we'd have a much better news organization. <laughs> I saw who got promoted as we went along. But um, no, Substack is... is um, I've a, I'm a friend of Matt Taibbi, who's um, got a head of Substack uh, uh, column going, and he was telling me it's much more vibrant and it's much more interesting because uh, I self-publish. I use uh, superb editors. Um, I'm using... One of my editors was... The, I worked for the London Review of Books, And a very bright guy named Chris Lorenzen uh, is the editor, and he's great. I listen to him, and I use as far as possible. Sometimes I can't always get him. I use fact checkers that used to work at the New Yorker when I was there. And at that time, there was no worry about sources. Uh, They knew all my sources.
3: That's really Uh, interesting. That's That's interesting to know because some people have criticized you on the basis that because you're independent, you haven't had that editorial process, you weren't able to, say, share the source with an editor and have them you know, double-check and confirm and, and, and give their own gut check on things. But you're saying that that actually isn't the case, that you're still using the same the same kind of team that you had at these institutional papers, but they're no longer affiliated, even though you're at No,
8: I'll, ta- I'll tell you the biggest difference in a way. That, uh, that may be the doom for, for good reporting on newspapers. When I was at the New Yorker, for example, I had a big run. At, um, I did the Abu Ghraib story, and I for three three weeks in a row. I was, and the paper was the magazine would tell me you're doing. It's, they were all happy because newsstand sales were going up. Newsstand sales of magazines are just about zip now, but they, the newsstand sales are going up. Circulation is growing, and at the end of the year, um, uh, since I was working for a company. Um, uh, 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 I, I, I was always a freelancer I never wanted to be on the staff of the New Yorker just because I didn't like it But I was you know, I was making you know earning a lot of money But at the end of the year I got a case of wine and I guess the people that run the magazine because of this the increase in circulation my stories generated uh, They might have got a hell of a big bonus Substack says <laughs> I'm self-publishing. I, di- I didn't do it for money. It's not about money but it is interesting to me that in the long run um, uh, this kind of a system, the Substack was started in part by um, uh, a couple of guys from um, New Zealand. One was a, a high-tech uh, writer, a, a journalist on high-tech, and the other one, was, I guess, was an entrepreneur. I don't know when they started, five, six years ago. But I will tell you, it is the most amazing place. The story I put up from nowhere had over a million uh, hits within you know, 20 hours. And I get letters constantly from people saying, what happened to this kind of reporting? There's not much of it. Right now, I I assure you, um, um, I knew this when I worked at the New York Times, I knew that I was one of the very rare people who actually had people on the inside who were not afraid to talk about things they didn't like.
3: Uh, (laughs) You know what I'm saying?
8: If there's something going wrong. And that's something, I've had three or four like that in 50 years. Yeah, and that's B- just before what we it let is. you
0: go, can you tell us anything about Larkin what's coming let me next? no, I'm so
8: happy to
0: hear that. <laughs> well, we've kept, not, we've kept not, you here a long time and we really appreciate it. Can you preview sold, for us your, your additional reporting on this subject? What'd you say? Uh, what's coming next? What are you working on now?
8: Well, I did a couple more pieces. I just did a piece uh, today, Thursday, yesterday. Um, uh, I think lying about the pipeline in the long run. Um, uh, this White House can never acknowledge it, but uh, let's assume it's a big leap for you maybe, and for a lot of people maybe, Uh, let's assume I'm right. Uh, What Joe Biden did in the fall at that time, as I understand it uh, from inside the community, what I know from my friends inside about how the war is going is almost like it's day and night between what you're reading in the newspapers, it's not going well at all. And that there's no way they're gonna no end in sight of a victory. They may, if they can get a stalemate, maybe. But I don't think that's possible. The Russians have yet to put any of their main forces in. I mean, that's a huge collapse. Whether you like Putin or don't like Putin, and most people here really hate Putin. And I have to say, anybody that starts a war, even with some justification, we did encroach NATO on him, and we're promising not to. But anybody that starts a war has to pay. You know, he's got to he's 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 got to own up to that. And you know, at some point. You know, in whether in life or death, uh, you don't start wars. The most bloody, most bloody war in the, in uh, Europe since uh, World War II. Um, you just that's not casual. Something casually to do. So, but having said, having said that, um, uh, uh, let let it go at that. I mean, I, 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 I'm not doing this because I I, I have any re- you know I have any reason to have any special feelings for Russia, but I don't think. The war is going to. I think this fall is going to be very rough. It's going to make a lot of the reporting that we're seeing not a a little, you know, a little over enthusiastic about it. Here's the problem: by killing the pipeline, and there was a pipeline, the second pipeline. The first one, Putin had already shut down the first pipeline. By killing the second one, he, which is controlled, was sanctioned by Germany. The worry he had in late fall, because I think very much he was aware this this was going to be a slog, slog at the very best and very bloody, which we're seeing right now, and the casualties are they're, they're brutal on both sides, but Ukraine can hardly afford them. Russia can, big difference. And um, what he did is he said to Germany, now if you decide to change your mind, Germany, you know Germany, because of its role in World War II, is always very reluctant to go military. And there was a lot of pressure on Scholl, the, the Chancellor, to not support uh, us in the Ukraine. And there was a lot of feeling in NATO that this war wasn't going the well, as well as it should. And, um, and I will tell you right now, um, uh, price of, of electricity, which is uh, the, 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 uh, five times higher now in France or in France, three or four times for gas in, in Italy, uh, it's already doubling it's getting higher already in Germany. It's going to be, it's, they'll get through, spring's coming, but next fall is going to be a disaster, and they all know it. And it's hurting the economy even now. The big companies don't have enough gas. They have the largest gas company, chemical company in the world, BASF is in Germany. They've been talking to the Chinese about maybe moving some facilities there because they, they don't have enough gas. And they, what they do get, they're paying too much for. Profits go down. Anyway, the upshot is that, that uh, by, by cutting off their pipeline, blowing it up, He's denied the German government a chance to open up the pipeline and keep their people warm, and uh, prices, and not paying and paying minimal prices for for heating, not only the rest of la- last winter but next winter, and that's not going to stand him well. I'm getting a lot of messages from Europe. Um, I, I, I don't I don't talk to politicians ever. I never like I never testified before the Congress. Not by the way, I don't see the Democrats in the Senate wanting a. An investigation of this? <laughs> Why Most certainly they?
3: not. In fact, we covered on my radar today uh, in another segment the fact that uh, Hakeem Jeffries, ha- House Minority Leader, was confronted by an activist about whether or not he'd call for some kind of investigation, and he got kind of a non answer. So I think you're right on the money on that one. And we really are so appreciative of all of the time you've been willing to spend with us here today. And we hope you come back uh, to Rising sometime soon and give us an update.
8: This is the longest eight minute interview I've had <laughs> this week. <laughs> okay, You're too good guys. to be contained to eight anyway. minutes. Thank
3: you again, Seymour Hirsch. And, and
8: I we'll- listen, um, uh, I, I, I welcome those questions because, you know, it's just too easy to dismiss things on the source basis. It's much more complicated than that. And as you may or may not know, but anyway, thank you for bringing up the issue. Thank bye
3: you bye again. Guys. Take care. Thank you.
0: from everyone here at Rising. Brianna and I will be back to bring you the latest news next week. In the meantime, enjoy this flashback from earlier this year. We're joined now by California Representative Ro Khanna. Congressman, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
9: Thank you. Always a pleasure.
0: Yes, it's our pleasure and we have a lot we want to talk about with you today. Um, First, we want to get your reaction. House Republicans obviously moving forward with this impeachment inquiry against President Biden. Here's Speaker McCarthy's announcement yesterday.
4: These are allegations of abuse of power, obstruction and corruption. And they warrant further investigation by the House of Representatives. That's why today I am directing our House committee to open a formal impeachment inquiry into president joe biden this logical next step will give our committees the full power to gather all the facts and answers for the american public that's exactly
0: representative your response
9: well, i thought senator fetterman had the best response and that, that this is silly It's silly season in washington uh, mccarthy doesn't even have the votes in his own caucus to do this Uh, It's not going anywhere in the Senate. Uh, And it's just political gamesmanship to try to put a black eye on the president heading into 2024.
3: Are you concerned it will be effective, even if it is silly, that there is a percentage of the American population, including the liberal media, which is increasingly covering this issue, who at very least see this as a kind of corruption, even if it's soft corruption, and maybe makes them think, that the kinds of allegations that have been, uh, that Donald Trump has been charged with are less a big a deal because everybody basically in in the so-called swamp is tarnished.
9: No, I don't think it'll be effective because the Republicans don't even have the votes in their own caucus. Uh, We, Donald Trump remember was impeached twice and even the impeachment inquiry that the speaker brought the first time, two weeks later there was a vote ratifying that inquiry uh, by the House of Representatives. Here, you don't have the votes. And that shows that the Republicans themselves know that this is just a totally politically motivated investigation for the reasons you said. I mean, Trump is, wants this because he's trying so desperately, twice impeached, four times indicted, to try to muddy the waters and, uh, get something to stick to President Biden. He's been trying that. That was one of the reasons he was impeached the first time. He's been looking for dirt, to manufacture dirt from the, the beginning. And, uh, it's not
0: going to work. You know, are you worried, though, about, you know, the polls showing President Biden's um, approval ratings that uh, many people, uh, a majority, I think, even in the Democratic Party would prefer another candidate? Um, Polls showing him running about even with Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, actually, if she was somehow to be the nominee up, you know, above uh, President uh, Biden. Is, Is he in a weaker um, position in terms of his reelection than one would hope for in your party? Look, if we looked at
9: polls this early out, uh, we would have had uh, President Gary Hart, uh, probably not had Ronald Reagan's reelection. We would have had uh, President Michael Dukakis. We wouldn't have had George Herbert Walker Bush. I think Dukakis was up 17 points at one point of four or five months before the election. So I just don't pay that much attention to polls this far out of an election. Historically, they haven't mattered What does matter is the president's record. And what is going to matter is the economy. And we've got to continue to work hard to bring gas prices down, food prices down, and to create good paying new jobs.
3: Well, that's part of the issue as well. I think people have been pointing to the consequences of the pandemic era programs Ending, the administration once bragged about having child poverty, now we're seeing kind of record levels of the same. Uh, there has been a lot of disappoint- disappointment around the student debt issue, as I'm sure you know. Uh, many of us got emails in our inbox over the last week or so announcing that uh, we were going to have to start repayments uh, as of next month. In the middle of an election year, after three years of having the loans on, on moratorium, a moratorium that was put there by Donald Trump, while Donald Trump was in office, Uh do you think that Democrats can make a good case that the economy is doing well and that they should feel better about their economic status today than they did three or four years ago?
9: But, Brianna, I do. I mean, we got the infrastructure bill passed. If you go around the country, there are a lot of good-paying jobs. We're bringing manufacturing back, semiconductor manufacturing, new electric vehicle battery manufacturing. We're creating a lot of union jobs. Unions have never been stronger. The president's NLRB has said that if you have unfair labor practices, this is Jennifer Abruzzo and the CMEX decision, then unions will automatically be recognized. So a lot of good has happened. But look, I disagree on the student loans. I mean, it was the Supreme Court uh, that struck that down. And I believe I've pushed the president to say, at least let's stop the interest accrual. As someone who took out $100,000 of loans, I was fortunate. I paid them back. But there were years in my 20s when I was making payments and the the, the number kept piling up because of uh, interest, and so we have to at least stop that interest accrual, uh, and I, I do hear people uh, struggling because of the student loan issue.
3: Well, Representative Khan, I do have to push back on two things. One, the loans have started again because Joe Biden chose to negotiate the end of the moratorium as part of the last debt ceiling negotiations. That was a choice by Joe Biden that cannot be attributed to the Supreme Court. If he plans to challenge the Supreme Court decision, as he is doing, he could say, let's continue the moratorium so that people don't have to pay sums that ultimately are going to be canceled when I am successful. And two many student loan experts, all of the student loan experts that I've spoken to—and I think I've ta- talked to you about this on my own podcast as well—so that Joe Biden could have made the choice to cancel all student debt via, via executive order using the same authority that Trump used to start the moratorium in the first place. But because he chose to means test it, he gave people this hook to go ahead and challenge it in court. So, for many voters— They understand that this was a choice, a series of choices that the Biden administration made that have put them in the situation of starting repayment uh, next month. So what do you say to those 44 million voters who might be feeling betrayed by Joe Biden in this this instance?
9: Well, look, the president used the HEROES Act, uh, and he can still use the Higher Education Act. So even though he made that deal with uh, McCarthy, which I disagreed with, I voted against it, as you remember, uh, he still now is pursuing the Higher Education Act to try to suspend uh, the, the repayments on the loans. And I believe under the Higher Education Act, he will have the authority. And I, I do think the administration should, when they have the authority, uh, zero out the loans, that up to the 20000 that they've set, uh, so that uh, people, are, if they're going to court, are going into court to sue students as opposed to having no relief. Would I have been more aggressive than the President? I would have. But the reality is that the President has done uh, a lot. I mean, he has uh, invoked the authority. He's fought this in court, He's now invoking another authority. And, and the real blame of this is on the Supreme Court and on the Republican side, where they made zero effort. So I and some progressives want to make an effort of a ten. President Biden probably was at a seven. And then you've got a Supreme Court and Republicans at a zero. The blame doesn't go from someone who's at a seven. The blame goes to people who are at a zero.
3: But, Ro isn't it the case that but for him choosing to negotiate, of all things, the end of the moratorium, people would not have to start paying in the middle of an election year their student loan payments back on October 1st? That was a choice that was purely within Joe Biden's purview, no?
9: No, because he negotiated saying that he wouldn't invoke the— Heroes Act He's now invoking a different authority. He's invoking uh, the Higher Education Act. And if the Supreme Court was going to strike so that's, down that's a different question, the use of the Heroes Act, then the, nego- the negotiation wouldn't have mattered. It was moved after the Supreme Court. He would have had to have a different negotiation. The, 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 the negotiation only covers the Heroes Act. It doesn't cover the I'm specifically authority.
3: talking about the end of the moratorium, not this, the question about whether or not the cancellation itself. It will ultimately be held up by the courts as a separate issue, but we can move on. But I want to be really clear, the moratorium is what people are concerned with, that Joe Biden made the choice to make them start repaying in the middle of an election year.
9: But the moratorium is also under the HEROES Act. You could have the moratorium under the Higher Education Act.
3: But the moratorium wasn't what was challenged. That's a Trump-era policy that has been persisted for three years.
9: That, true, yeah. true, but the moratorium, the, the deal of uh, with McCarthy only applies to the HEROES Act you can still have a moratorium under the Higher Education Act or other uh, authorities. And we should be pushing for a moratorium on uh, interest accrual and student uh, repayment. I believe we can do that even under the terms of the deal, because that only restricts the heroes' Act.
0: Right. And obviously, there are many of us who think that um, people should repay exactly what they borrowed and that it would be a... Blunder to um, forgive people's debt obligations, actually, but that's my perspective, obviously not the progressive perspective. Representative, we wanted to um, ask you about a couple other things. You've put forth a new five-point political reform platform, which includes things like banning candidates for federal office from receiving donations from lobbyists or political action committees of any kind, 18-year term limits for Supreme Court justices. Um, If Democrats win the House, will this legislation be a priority? Can you talk about it a little bit more? Uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, how do they feel about your legislation? Uh, Fill us in.
9: Well, I'll be putting it up, uh, hopefully, for a vote, and I want the Democrats to run on this, the president and members of Congress. We should have zero PAC money. We should uh, not have leadership PACs. I don't take PAC money, never have, don't have a leadership PAC. We shouldn't have money from corporations or, or lobbyists. Um, members of Congress shouldn't be allowed to go become lobbyists ever. Uh, members of Congress shouldn't benefit personally through stock trading. Uh, members of Congress should have be term limited, as should Supreme Court justices. And we need an ethics code for Supreme Court justices. The amazing thing is this common sense proposal has had so much support from uh, across the aisle. And I think it is a uh, opportunity for us to, to to run on reform, to make reform. No one in the current political system is perfect. What voters are looking for is a bold agenda to fix the system.
0: Hmm. Do you think Biden should embrace this Embrace this agenda?
9: I do. I do. You know, I don't understand how he twice impeached, four times indicted, former president is trying to run as the outsider. And I believe that the Democratic Party needs to run as the outsider. They're going to clean up a system that obviously isn't working for the ordinary, um, for ordinary Americans. Do I think most people who come to Congress have good intentions? I do, I actually do. But the point is that the system itself uh, is totally influenced by lobbyists, by special interest money, by members then uh, ending up and going and becoming lobbyists. And the American people have no faith in that the system is actually looking out for them. These are the types of reforms that will say, we're trying to prioritize people uh, over special interests.
0: You know, there are there are challengers to Joe Biden, Marianne Williamson, RFK Jr. who are running on, um, I, I think objectively, more uh, progressive platforms or probably even are, are more uh, on, on board with some of the policies you yourself have put forward, in, including what you've just outlined. Um, and, and obviously there are so many in the Democratic Party have, that have said they would like a different um, nominee, which I, I know I've already asked you about, but um, is it is it simply because you know Biden is the incumbent, so you know, it would be very odd to not support the incumbent, even though there are more progressives in in the race. You know what is the what is the reason that one feels so strongly about sticking with President Biden?
9: Well, ideology isn't the only thing you look at when you vote for President of the United States. Experience matters. Can you do the job? Can you be the leader of the free world? Are you going to be able to rally our allies? Do you know how to lead the military? Are you going to be able to build coalitions in the House and the Senate to get things done? Uh, Are you going to be able to spearhead legislation? So uh, yes, there's some of the challengers who I may agree with on Medicare for all or free public college. But when I look uh, at who I think would be the best president overall, uh, I believe that's Joe Biden
3: you believe you you listed a number of things it seems like medicare for all having universal health care for millions of americans and the richest country in the history of the world We're currently paying twice as much for health care costs than any other peer nation. And we have something called medical bankruptcy, uh, and also 68,000 people before the pandemic dying every year from a lack of health care is lower on the priority list than someone who can lead a military, a military which many Americans on both sides of the aisle feel like should be led less, a military budget that we think should be cut. Many Americans think that should be cut significantly. Um, Is it accurate to say that that's? That I've articulated your priorities. That's a
9: mischaracterization of my position. I was the only person on the Armed Services Committee, one out of 56, that people can look at who voted against the military budget going to a trillion dollars. And I've led on Medicare for All with Bernie Sanders. I'm going to be actually coming out with a bill with him on medical debt. But uh, it is giving people false hope to say that someone can just run on that and then get things done. What we need are people who are going to run on that and actually get co-sponsors, push for a hearing, as Pramila Jayapala and I have, as Bernie Sanders would have. The reason I supported Bernie Sanders is that he was in the House and he was in the Senate. It wasn't just that he was taking these positions. He knew I had full confidence that Bernie Sanders had become president. Uh, that he would have been able to actually get these things done. And I don't believe you can just run for president without having any prior uh, experience in the federal system and be effective. I I, I I, don't. Bernie Sanders had a lot of that
3: experience. And what do you say to those who say, okay, well, I voted for Biden in 2020 because that was the pitch that was made. And in fact, what we've been hearing for the last three years is that to the extent that his agenda, core items of his agenda, promises that he made to Bernie Sanders of things he would fight for when Bernie Sanders dropped out very quickly in 2020 have not been actualized. For example, a $15 minimum wage of policy so popular that uh, Trump's Florida in 2020 2020, voted for it by 60 60 percent of voters supporting that particular policy. Um, The Build Back Better being bifurcated in uh, largely stripped in its uh, final incarnation, uh, the Willow Project, um, the student debt uh, issue, which we've already discussed, which you attribute um, its failure to the Supreme Court. If the argument is that Joe Biden wasn't able to effectuate any of those kinds of policies, big-ticket items, big promises, canceling all HBCU debt, canceling ten dollars to $20,000 of student debt for all Americans, a $15 minimum wage, can you really ar- argue that Joe Biden is able to get things done?
9: Well, look, I said that we should have fired the Senate parliamentarian. I wish we had gotten the uh, $15 wage. And I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post calling for that. I think the Willow Project was a terrible decision, $8 billion on public lands in Alaska for the largest oil drilling project on public lands. It was a gut punch to climate activists. So uh, you know, I am not uh, saying that Joe Biden has been the perfect progressive president. I don't think he's been what Bernie Sanders would have been. But you have to look at the whole record. And he has gotten manufacturing jobs back. He has been one of the most pro-labor, pro-union presidents. He has Canceling stood up for reproductive rights. Question the railroad up strike, though, Representative Khanna? The,
3: the, the concern is that there he's a man of contradictions. He says he's the most pro-labor president. He has not made forceful statements supporting the workers in the impending UAW strike. And he crushed the rail strike earlier this year in a moment that people thought was one of the most anti- union actions that they've seen in their lifetimes. And and with all due respect, I hear you distinguishing yourself from Biden, and I credit your record. But unless you are going to run for president, which I think some people would really love to see, at the end of the day, the question is whether or not the arguments that are made in Joe Biden's favor about his ability to get things done hold up three years after the Democratic Party has largely made the case that Joe Biden is not Joe Biden's fault, that he hasn't been able to fulfill many of his campaign promises.
9: Well, I would say that Joe Biden has been more progressive than uh, I expected. Uh, he is standing in on labor. I think he is generally he stood with Starbucks workers. He stood with Amazon workers. He's standing with UAW workers. Now, I think we need to be 100 percent with UAW workers. I mean, the big three has a, have had five billion dollars in stock buybacks. Where is that money going that they can't pay the workers more and they're getting tax subsidies? So obviously you're going to hear a progressive like me, like Bernie Sanders, uh, like uh, others in the progressive caucus. We want a bolder, more populist economic message and, uh, and, and stand clearer on climate and income inequality issues. That's why I supported Bernie Sanders. But in the context of the choice between uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden and in the context of his record, I would argue that it represents a shift of the Democratic Party more in the direction of Bernie Sanders uh, than not. And we should build on that progress.
0: Representative Khanna, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, appreciate it.